Support for this podcast comes from Frito-Lay in the 2023 Snack Bracket Championship. The Frito-Lay Snacket Challenge is underway, and fans are voting on their favorite snacks to crown champion. We're talking about primetime matchups between the best 64 snacks in the land. Will Ruffles Ridges reign supreme? Can Doritos defend their dynasty? Or will Smart Food use their smarts for a surprise upset? Only you can decide. Get in on all the action for a chance to win up to $1,000 or a year's worth of snacks. Let your snacks be heard. Just go to frito to vote and enter for a chance to win. No purchase necessary. Sweepstakes ends April 3rd, 2023. Void but prohibited. Years worth of snacks awarded in the form of 52 coupons, each good for one bag of chips. See official rules at frito Welcome to the Black and Gold Banneret Podcast. Jeff Sharon, Brian Murphy, Eric Lopez with you as we count down the days left in the waning days of July. Well, I, you know, usually we'd be able to sniff football by now and soccer and volleyball. I don't know, man. Like, it's... I'm getting nervous. I'm getting nervous, boys, What's if this is going to happen at all. Oh, yeah. It's not like there's been any warning signs of it not happening from the American Conference or anything as yeah. of the day. Listen, <laughs> listen. We're, I'm just grateful we got Major League Baseball started, which we didn't even know that was going to happen. Let's just take the positives. Right, Murph? Base, yeah, here. Major- I'll, I'll ruin it for you. I'll ruin it for you. Fake crowd noise with nobody in the stands. What the hell? It is so much better than the than the the like the Dead Sea that we could have had. No, it's the, not. You yes, can it hear is. the players, yeah. mic everybody up. I want to hear all that stuff. Put it on a Every, ten second delay. Have, Come on. TV viewers have been conditioned for our entire lives. If you watch baseball, for as a, 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 a to know and to understand what a certain baseball game sounds like. Every game in the monotonous moments of a baseball game, which there are many sounds the same that sound has to persist otherwise because we're so conditioned it feels really awkward so that's why this is happening you might hate it because the lack of access to players mics but it makes the broadcast feel uh, a bit more cozy um more comfortable more like familiar than having no sound at all feels awkward to me by the way did you guys watch that colorado texas game last night when the I was watching the top of the first and the and the announcers. I forget who the Rockies announcers were, but they're like, "Hey, you can hear the crowd really getting into it now." I'm like, "You guys are idiots!" All right, know, I don't know what you guys are talking about. As a Marlins fan, we're I haven't seen any difference at all. As far as <laughs> no, I mean, I couldn't tell you. <laughs> well, I, I tell you what, with with the Marlins game, I'm sure it'll be louder with no fans in the building than if it was with fans in the building. Anyway. Uh, we that concludes are, our MLB Tonight segment right here. Thank you. <laughs> Moving on to more important things. We got a, we got a busy show for you tonight. We've got uh, a very special guest a little bit later. Eric Lopez stopping by with UCF men's soccer great and really great of the game in uh, in the United States, Winston DuBose, who is part of our uh, top 10 UCF male athletes of all time. We'll talk about the top 10 male and female athletes. We'll talk about our, also diving into the um, – uh, into the top 40 coaches, head coaches of all time at UCF uh, and uh, a number of other things as well. But first, we got to talk about whether or not we are going to have sports in the fall and in what shape they will be when it happens. Uh, all right. So first order of business, what we know officially right now, uh, the American Athletic Conference has announced today that they are delaying the start 
of Olympic sports in the fall. So that's non-football, okay? Uh, delaying the fall Olympic sports competition until September 1st. Why is this significant? It wipes out the first weekend, in some cases, two weekends of competition for volleyball and soccer. Uh, and that is significant for a number of reasons, uh, not the least of which that, you know, those are opportunities that those programs can have uh, to, especially in UCF's case, to beat, you know, top-notch non-conference uh, competition in what, you know, the coaches obviously like to refer to as preseason, but the non-conference schedule. But that's not the, that's not just the half of it. Uh, as reported uh, by uh, Nicole Auerbach of The Athletic uh, and, something that we know basically just based on the NCAA schedule right now. Um, we know about the cancellations and postponements that are happening, but the NCAA's board of governors uh, is expected to meet this Friday and they are going to vote on whether or not to cancel the NCAA's sponsored national championships for the fall, including FCS uh, and uh, the other divisions for college football, everything that's not FBS. Um, and, uh, and, and not just that, but all the other sports, soccer, volleyball, you name it, that are decided um, in the fall. Now, they could kick the can down the road to August the 4th. There is some indication from the college football playoff uh, automatic, from the Autonomous Five, I should say, the Autonomous Five conferences that, they want the NCAA to kick football down the road to August 4th, mm-hmm. um, but probably don't care about the Olympic sports. Um, nonetheless, at least as of this moment, as of this recording, 11 Eastern time on Wednesday, July 22nd, uh, 11 p.m. Eastern time. Yes, we stay up this late. Um, the calendars for soccer and volleyball and the other Olympic sports are staying put as, as, as they were. My question is, guys, Friday, boy, what's going to happen? Because this all of a sudden became a very big week in college sports. Brian, what do you, I'll go with you first. Well, I mean, Friday could be a, a, a move of, of seismic proportions, really, college athletics. Basically, the, it, could, it could lead to the realization that there will be no fall sports no no fall olympic olympic sports in the fall because we're talking about them canceling the championships which means just your tournaments your postseason events but without those you then would see conferences having at least the leeway to say well we decide now to scrap entire seasons and so mm-hmm. it's amazing to think that within 36 hours from now as of this speaking uh, we could see uh, you know, really, the, uh, almost the entire fall sports program, save for FBS football, collapse and 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 postponed or canceled basically until who knows when. Uh, it's 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 kind of hard to wrap your mind around, but we are this close to to really a, a massive day in the history of college sports. The, the the real issue, as it as you know, from what I see it right here, as it always is, is money. Now it's important to remember, everyone's always like, we always hear fans talking about like, hey. You know, well, why doesn't the NCAA just come up with a uniform testing protocol? The problem is a lot of schools can't afford that. Like if you're talking about, you know, maybe, you know, Michigan and Ohio State, <clears throat> you know, the Big Ten, the big money schools, they could t- afford to test their athletes or student athletes, you know, twice a week. You know, maybe, but, you know, some other schools, like maybe, I don't know what UCF, 
you know, budget would look like. But, you know, you could have a system where, you know, maybe t- the temples and Tulsa's of the world can only test maybe once a week, if that. These tests are expensive. And then when you get further down the line in Division One, you know, I mean, at, 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 you know, places like FAMU or FAU, like, they might not be able to test their students at all based on their on their, um, on their their budgets. And so for the NCAA to try and come up with a, a uniform testing procedure is simply financially impossible. And if that's the case, then, the, if you're, like you said, they have no choice but to cancel or, or at least postpone. I mean, they're still leaving the door open for the spring, at least as well, a possibility. We don't know that. You're right. We don't know that. But but at least there's the indications from Nicole Auerbach's article that we don't know if they would cancel and if they would move them back to the spring or not. That's That seems to be at least a remote possibility. But – you know, again, this is where people think. I think Eric, that people think the NCAA has more power than it actually does, right? It, it, right, it has no power. Um, and on, I and I, I know Brian has talked to me. We've talked about this off the uh, off the air when it comes to Major League Baseball, right? Everybody criticizes the commissioner and 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 what he's done wrong and why he can't do this. But as Brian has brought it up to me, and I think it applies to the NCAA. You know, the commissioner of Major League Baseball, Rob Manfred, answers to the owners. He's doing what the owners want him to do. The NCAA has no power in this because, you know, and I've been amused by Mac Brown, who's coming out this week, almighty, like, we need, you know, we needed somebody, a czar in charge of college athletics and college football. Well, who do you think would hire that guy? It would probably be somebody, the power five, the autonomous five conferences. So they're just going to be, whoever you hire, whoever you put in that spot, is probably just going to do whatever the person that hires him wants him to do. It's so it, it's a, it's just is what it is. They have no uh, leeway on that. Uh, I think the thing with the NCAA that I'm looking to see, and you kind of touched on that. I want to see how they word this. Now I'm a little, I'm still a little sensitive because obviously I was part of the spring sports when the, the NCAA announced it over Twitter uh, in like in a blink of an eye without, you know, letting a phone call, letting everybody know, Hey guys, we're done. We're done in the spring. While many school teams were flying to destinations to play. I hope that's well, not, well, no, well no, the NCAA didn't remember the NCAA doesn't universally cancel all college sports and they didn't. No, no, but, well, they, they simply they announced that the they weren't right. They weren't canceled. Right. They were canceling the NCAA championships, right. which then gave the conferences cover right. to, to stop their seasons. Right. Cause at that point, what are you playing for? And to Murph point, like he brought up. So I think that's to me, the biggest thing I'm fascinated and it might be this Friday. It could be a week from now or two weeks. How do they word the fall sports? Do they say it's being postponed? Do they postpone it to later in the fall? Do they post say, no, we're going to postpone it until the spring or do they leave it open? Do they just say, Hey, it's canceled. And we may look at it to see if we could try it in the spring. Cause those are very different terms. Uh, and keep in mind, the NCAA a few weeks ago, they were trying to set it up to where they can most sports would end before Thanksgiving because they were concerned about the winter and the second wave and you know the flu season. So to me, and volleyball and soccer, and we've discussed this on this program many a times, it's a sprint, really, especially soccer. It's yeah. a real sprint. I don't think any de- any delays you have, which is what we're probably going to be headed towards this, I don't think you can fit the season in. So I want to see what the NCAA announces as far as will they actually move these sports to the spring if that's what they decide to do, 
or is it in danger of being scrapped altogether? Because remember, there was a lot of pitch uh, push, especially on the softball side. I'm not going to speak on the baseball side, but there was some talk about, hey, why don't we try to wait and see? Maybe we could play the championships in the summer. I mean, there was no discussion of that, it, it, at least for it was about 24 hours. And then basically what happened was they canceled the, the championships and then eventually they got the extra year. Are we going to have a deja vu? Are we going to have a sequel of this play out in the fall? Or is it going to be a little more organized where they're going to say, you know what, we're just going to push it this spring. We will have a chance. I want to, I want them to be, uh, to say, yes, we're going to, we're going to try, we're going to have a championship. We will work on those dates, but we will have uh, these sports in the spring. Or do they leave it up in the air? We're all guessing, Hey, is there going to be soccer volleyball in the spring? Well, I I think that the, the wording, if they, if they make this decision on Friday and Murph, you said it like, this is, this is a big, big moment for the NCAA. And I, I actually, I think that I've speculated on this publicly before. And, you know, we've seen, we've seen a lot of people speculate. I, I think that this is, this is sort of the, the end of the beginning of a major crack up in college sports where we might see um, these major conferences split up and we might see a major overhaul of the map. And, you know, but the thing is, I really feel bad for you know the athletes that that are in these sports that, you know, they know that there's, you know, with the with the exception of a very few, there's no professional prospects here for this. Um, and even the ones who do have pros prospects like, you know, we've seen several UCF men's soccer players, for example, women's soccer players getting chances in the NW, in the in the in the women's league. The. um they're still paying a lot of their way because of the scholarship. And that's the other thing that's going to be, that's going to be interesting to follow is, you know, what happens with, are they going to do the same thing that they did with baseball and, and softball and track, you know, in terms of giving them an extra eligibility. And then what do the schools do with that? Are they able to offer that? Um, And, and what do you do with the rosters and all that? Right. I mean, I Murph, this is, this is a sticky wicket that they're going to, that, that schools like UCF, if that happens, are going to have to na- are going to have to navigate here. Absolutely, no, absolutely. And so there's so many other questions here beyond just the is this thing going to exist part that we really have yet to field. That's because some of the questions, uh, it's just there, there are things that we there there's things that we that could pop up that we can't even address yet because we just don't know. But I, I do want to hammer home the point that you brought up, Jeffrey, and I think people overlook it because. Uh, you know, sports like like volleyball and uh, and and soccer, you know, don't you know, they play in small arenas with bleacher seating. They're not on television. They don't get a lot of pub nationally or really even locally from a lot of the fan base. But that doesn't mean that these kids and, and the athletes don't care as much as football players. It's the same thing. I mean, these kids work as hard. They practice as hard. They want to win as much. And so. You know, unfortunately, for through no fault of their own, uh, they, they are. I would, you know, say at this point, they're likely going to lose a season. And we, and we sort of, we sort of, you know, uh, saying the same requiem in the spring for the for the other for baseball and softball players, but and and basketball. It, it, but it's it sucks for them. It's it's absolutely yeah. brutal. To help people understand that. Yeah, you may not pay attention as as much to these sports, but at least understand that these kids and these athletes do play for the university that you are a fan of. And that you need to, you know, you need to realize, like, if you know, it's the same thing as a football player. If they lost their season, like, these kids are going to hurt as much. This is no different. 
if not and, more, if not more, to what Jeff pointed out, like with football players, let's be honest, there's a percentage of them they're thinking NFL, right? That's the mm-hmm. that's the goal. Where a lot of these players in soccer, volleyball, cross country, this is it. This is the highlight. This is going to be your pinnacle of yeah. your career in playing sports in a lot of ways, and will and and this could have a drastic impact. Um, on everything from your perspective, you know, how your career ends, how you think about your career. I mean, Je- you know, Jeff, you and I, I mean, Murph, you too, you, we've all covered for, I'll give an example. McKenna Melville sent an incredible two years is on pace right now to be the all time leader in kills uh, held by the hall of famer, Renetta Menchikova. She has a shot to be the greatest volleyball player in the history of the program. Only mm-hmm. Tyra Harper has led the UCF volleyball program to four straight NCAA tournaments. McKenna has a chance to do that, but that might get taken away from her if there's no NCAA championships or no season at all in the fall or in the spring for volleyball. It drastically yeah. changes history. And so, again, I just want people to, to again, I know, because I know not as much attention is being paid to those sports. I hope people understand that what is going to happen, what might happen Friday or possibly on the 4th, either or, is going to hurt a lot of, a lot of young people who represent this university proud university proudly and people need to you know maybe you know just understand like how much that that's going to suck for them even if you never yeah. watched a soccer or a volleyball match the ever. greatest the, and it's out there now you could check it out on black and but the greatest athlete in ucf athletics history is not a football player it is a women's soccer player michelle Akers, was produced here that's one of the sports that's involved here that just to yeah. give you an idea now I will say though, and, and and yeah, I echo everything that you guys are saying. I, I it, 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 there's no part of this that will not suck. Um, I, there's a great piece on the Athletic. Nicole Auerbach, fantastic writer, has this up um, that we talked about at the beginning. And I wanted to read this paragraph because you know everyone's always going to think of football first. Unfor- you know, I mean, say say what you want about that, but that's <laughs> yeah. What it, as you said, unfortunately. I was going to say, yeah, unfortunately. I mean, well, well, I, I, but you know, here's the obvious thing: is that the, remember, the NCAA has essentially zero control over football. Okay, let's just let's just accept that and understand it. Over the FBS. Over yeah. over F, FBS football. To be specific, yeah, because yeah. right. the FCS they do have control. So yeah. right, but they have zero control over the FBS schools at all. Uh, That is vested in the college football playoff, at least as of right now. Uh, This is a quote from the article from Nicole Auerbach. Uh, One Power 5 athletic director told The Athletic that if he were NCAA president Mark Emmert, he would convince the board to cancel all fall championships, citing health and safety concerns, which would then put pressure on the college football playoffs executive leadership to make a call on FBS football. Quote, That would force the conversation, end quote, the Power 5 AD said. It would also, he said, improve the perception of Emmert, who has been seen as largely irrelevant from a leadership perspective throughout the past four months. As it stands now, individual university presidents are inching closer to taking matters into their own hands and acting in their personal interests without a directive from above. Quote, the NCAA can be a leader on this, the Division I athletic director said, that's why we have a board of governors to govern, not manage. So this this is setting up to be a massive clash between the NCAA and the and and the college football playoff. And so my question to you would be, guys, who do you think's going to win? 
Football. Uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I'll, I'll put my money on the college, uh, on the on the FBS, and particularly the Power Five. Thank you very much. Yeah, no, I mean that's the thing. I mean they're going to they have the power, they have the money. They, that's where they the want money. to get, and they're going to and they're going to get their way. Now, what their way, quote unquote, looks like is, I mean, we're going to sort that out over the next three to five years, I would imagine, but maybe sooner rather than later. Based on this, because I could totally see a situation where, say, the SEC gets pissed at the NCAA for blowing up the season say, and putting the pressure on them. And the question is, well, first of all, would they even feel the pressure or would they just decide that they don't care? And then who would put the pressure on them to begin with? And then what do they decide to do? And I, I, I don't know, man. Like, Eric, well, that, I don't, well, that, I don't well, see how this ends well for the NCAA. I just don't. Well, some would say that's fine. I mean, nobody's going to feel sorry for them. So, I mean, that's just is. I'm not saying is. anyone should. I'm just saying, like, I think that's. I mean, UCF is sitting on that pressure. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. So, I mean, uh, Danny White, you're looking at this, saying you got to be following this really closely and making phone calls, saying, "Lord, what what are we going to do?" You gotta hope you get an. In, you gotta hope that some doors open down the road here, where maybe some other schools fall by the wayside in these bigger conferences. That's always been the plan. It's always been the idea. This is not foreign territory. Um, it's or, just, or at least you have to prove that you can that you can financially withstand what's going on here. Yeah, and you know it would have been great if we didn't have a windless, you know, multiple windless seasons in the last two decades to kind of give people ammunition why we shouldn't be invited to a major conference. So. Um, but that's look, here's the thing that's all going to sort that was going to probably happen at some point. It's probably been sped up by the current climate, but the reality is that is right now on the back burner. The bigger issue is what's going to happen this fall and spring in general with football, because as we know, if there's no football being played this fall or this spring, we got bigger issues than, Hey, we're met. We're going to go away from the NCAA. We're going to have lots of issues with universities and budgets and athletic departments and sports teams. And I think that it's important to note, regardless of what comes out Friday, I do not anticipate the FBS announcing, Hey, we're going to go to the spring too. No, they're going to still try to play this in the fall. And in fact, I wouldn't be surprised if you start seeing in the next week or two, we probably hear, What's going to happen with the SEC, the Big 12, and the ACC as far as scheduling? I think you'll hear stuff from the Big 10 and the Pac-12 as far as how they're going to schedule conference games. Mm -hmm. And that's the question there becomes, how does UCF fit in all that? Will there be non-conference games? Or how the American fits in that? In particular, sure. But, you know, let's be honest. We don't care about the others. We're caring about ourselves right now, UCF. All right? That's what we – are we going to get the North Carolina game or the Georgia Tech game? That's the biggest question. And the answer is – Probably not, but it's not. The door has not been shut yet. A lot's going to depend on what does the ACC decide to do. Do they do a conference only? Do they do non-conference? And if they do non-conference, how many non-conference games are they going to allow? One game? Two games? It's a big difference because, for example, Georgia Tech, if they're only going to be allowed to play one non-conference game, guess which game they're going to have? It's the Georgia game. That's right. what they're going to do. Uh, North Carolina, if they only have one game to pick, they'll probably pick the Auburn game just as part of a deal with the SEC. Uh, so I think those are things to kind of watch out for here in the next couple of weeks because that's going to impact UCF financially and their schedule potentially. And this also will impact what the American decides to do. Because you're right, Mike Oresco has been on record. He would like 
to stay involved in the non-conference. There's a lot of American conference teams that have marquee games against those conferences. In particular, I know, for example, SMU plays TCU every year. Geography, that makes sense. So they would like to keep those games. Uh, whether they're successful or not, who knows? I I was doubtful that Mike Oresco can be successful on this with the American, but you never know. If these leagues decide to keep non-conference games, then we might still uh, UCF might still get a game or two, or UCF may schedule somebody else, like we saw with Alabama, who reportedly is now going to schedule BYU for the opener. Yeah, I mean it's the wild wild west, wild. folks. What what is you know and <laughs> Notre Dame, right? I mean they're you know kind of sort of ACC. Yeah. How are they going to do? You know how are they going to do this? It's it's wild, Murph. I'll leave the last word with you. What, like, what do you want to see happen? Well, it, just in terms of the of the ACC games, the North Carolina Georgia Tech games, there's something in my mind that keeps rolling around. Do you guys remember when Maggie shot Mr. Burns on the Simpsons? I do. Yeah. So in the and that was the season finale, and then in the series in the season premiere the next season, there was a news report. Uh, for, uh, I think it was Ken Brockman doing the news report about Mr. Burns being shot. And the news report says Mr. Burns was rushed to a nearby hospital where he, where he was pronounced dead. He was then rushed to a different hospital where his condition was upgraded to alive. And I feel <laughs> like that is sort of what's happened here with these, a with these ACC games because these things were dead and buried like three weeks ago by, by like reputable reporters. And yet, as we sit here on July 22nd, like these things are still hanging by a thread. And yeah, we don't know if they're going to play them. Like, like Eric said, you know, the ACC and, and, and some of the big conferences are really trying to team up to save uh, their schedules. So we don't know if they're going to play any non-conference games or one or two uh, per team. But uh, it's amazing to me that these things are actually still kicking. Um, I, I, you know, in the end, I don't think they will be played. But I think it's amazing that they've survived this long. And I guess the last thing is, once the NCAA does move to uh, cancel the fall seasons for Olympic sports. And I know it's, we don't want to make it sound like a fait accompli, but Jesus, right. that's just plain. Um, like what, what's going to change between now and Friday that, or, or, right. or even now in three weeks from now, that's going to August, you know, or August 4th or whatever. August, it, just, you know, it, it feels very inevitable. Um, I, I am fascinated by the optics of that situation of then FBS football being really the, the, the only, the only gunman at the corral standing there alone saying we're pushing forward and again that the debate and the conversation there might become mind-numbing after a while but i think it'd be fascinating to hear like how they sort of ride through that those sort of waves of just like how can they really pull this off without looking just just very transparent like trans like um transparently uh greedy and self-interested and uncaring of anybody else but themselves and their own pockets. And again, I understand that that's what what that's sort of what we think anyway about college football, cynically. But it's a it, but when when the other sports go by the wayside, you're going to hear that so much louder from so many other voices. I think it's going to be really interesting to see how they sort of navigate a ton of 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 universally bad press. Yeah, social media I, I, will be fun on Friday, won't it? Oh, man. I, I just I just think back to Greg Sankey back on March the 12th, uh, where when the NCAA canceled the basketball championships and and he expressed 
his and he's the SEC commissioner, by the way, and he expressed his sort of anguished surprise that the NCAA just made that unilateral call. Um, mm-hmm. Which, by the way, Greg Sankey is not stupid. Okay, he knows that the NCAA can make that call, and there's nothing really he can do about it. And they could have. And, and you know what? I mean, I get that, but it's just it's just all setting up, you know, to to come crashing down. And man, I just I, I'm torn between being sad about you know, about what bad news may come, and then also fascinated about what it's going to look like on the op- on the other end of it. I don't know. It's just, but we'll find out. We may or and by the way, I said I was about to say we'll find out on Friday. We may not find out on Friday. They may kick the again, they may kick the can two weeks or in this case about a week and a half to to Tuesday August the 4th. Um but we don't know. We'll have to we'll just have to wait and see. Which is We could week. be talking about the same thing in segment 1 of next week's podcast. Wouldn't that be dandy? Wouldn't it? Yeah, it's or we could, or maybe during an emergency podcast two weeks from now. Who knows? Well, I, I was know. going to say, guys, be ready on Friday. You never know. I know. All right. We, uh, we're going to take a breather. When we get back, Eric Lopez speaks with Winston DuBose, UCF men's soccer great um, and one of the real legends of uh, soccer in the, uh, in the 70s and 80s, uh, not just the UCF, but in the United States. Stick around. We'll be back after this. Today's episode is brought to you by Cars.com. With over 2 million vehicles and 50,000 more added every day, Cars.com will match you with the perfect car for you, your budget, your life, your style. And if you're ready to say goodbye to your current car, Cars.com will get you an instant offer to cash it in. Just start by entering your license plate and get matched with a local dealer who will write you the check. So whether you're looking to buy or sell, just go to cars.com. It's magical. Welcome back to the Black and Gold Banneret Podcast. Jeff Sharon, Eric Lopez, Brian Murphy with you here. Interview time, and Brian, or rather Eric, had uh, one of the legends that we've, uh, that I, I always thought he kind of got lost in the shuffle when we talk about great UCF athletes. Winston DuBose. The greatest for our for our as far as we know for, as of right now the greatest UCF men's soccer player uh, of all time and uh, a legend in his own time uh, uh, played uh, not just for UCF and was outstanding obviously but played professionally and he was in the top ten Eric Lopez of your uh, top uh, of your top one hundred UCF Knights male athletes uh, of all time and you and he uh, and, and he. I guess he reached out to you, right? And and he wanted to, uh, and and, uh, and we took the interview with him, and it was, uh, and what a good time to talk to talk with him because obviously soccer, I think, has gotten a little bit of a boost in everybody's mind with you know watching MLS, you know now that baseball is starting up, they probably see a dip, but you know for a while there, soccer's kind of been the only game in town, and it speaks to also to UCF's soccer history, which is so much better than people think, right? It really is, and it all started with Winston DuBose, who played at what was then FTU in the early 70s and helped alongside head coach Jim Rudy built the men's soccer program. Was a three-time All-American. You mentioned Winston DuBose in the top 10. He's number three in the top 100 male athletes. Three is a magical number for Winston DuBose. He's the three-time All-American while during that UCF, where he still has numerous goalkeeping records. And it's also three is a magic number because he last year – 
became the third person from UCF to be inducted into the Florida Sports Hall of Fame, joining Michelle Akers and Torchy Clark. I had a chance to catch up with Winston DeBose to talk about his career, which also spans to the NASSL, as you mentioned, the big soccer league back then in the States, and his playing through Europe, and how UCF soccer got built. All that and much more. Winston DeBose, right now, Black and Gold Banneret Podcast. And joining us now, of course, he is in the UCF Athletics Hall of Fame in the year 2000, and last year was inducted into the Florida Sports Hall of Fame in 2019, the third that part of UCF to be inducted there. Of course, one of the greats, uh, three-time All-American for the then FTU program. Of course, we know them as UCF men's soccer. He had a tremendous career helping start the program and coach uh, playing under Jim Rudy, as well as great professional career in the NASL and over in Europe. I speak of Winston DuBose. Joining us kindly now here on the Black and Gold Banneret Podcast. Uh, how you doing? Well, I'm doing great, Eric. Thank you very much for having me. I appreciate it. Well, let's talk about a little bit about your career because uh, yeah, obviously we did the top 100 and we put you in at number three, and that might caught some catch some people off guard. But uh, as I was doing the research on you, I was blown away by the, uh, the the amount of really your success in your career, but also the impact you've had on UCF on men's soccer, uh, as we'll talk about. But just a great career you've had, not only while you were at UCF, and of course at the time it was FTU, and we'll talk about that, but throughout mm-hmm. your pro career, you were a goalkeeper for the United States national team from 79 to 80, you know, so we'll talk about that as well. But just just talk about kind of what was it like back then when you decided to come to FTU and, and play here, and what was that like? What was going into that decision process? Well, that's, uh, that, that's a um... – that's a very good. That's a very good question. Um, I, previously, uh, FTU was on my radar screen because of Jim Rudy. Jim Rudy coached Warner Park High School. He was a former Rollins uh, college soccer player. Very good, cerebral. Really loved the game, and he was a very good coach and a, a good motivator. But he's a very good teacher. So um, I was actually directing my thoughts. What FTU wasn't first. I really was trying to get in the Air Force Academy, and it didn't work out for me. And then um, I went on a small trip uh, with uh, Trinity Prep, where I graduated from in the summer of 73. And the UCLA coach, who, by the way, same as Terry Fisher, and they were number one in the country. They'd been number one for several years. Saw me, was on the trip, and he said, uh, you know, I want you to play UCLA. Well, that wasn't going to, you know, that uh, I was – totally flattered and it was unbelievable because they were the best team in the country but that wasn't going to happen my father wouldn't allow me to go to UCLA so um it worked out great you know I got accepted to FTU I already knew Jim and what he was about so I was really happy and it was an embryonic soccer program and uh and he just did a magnificent job with it so um, and like I say, I think the big thing, Eric, is that Jim brought a whole group of players. And, and the players at that time, we all played together. We'd do pickup games. We'd play after practice. We'd play in the summer. We'd play in club teams, all of us together. And so it's just not about Winston DeBose. There was a lot of good players there, uh, some that actually uh, either went pro, a couple that went pro, I believe Tony Smith did, and he just didn't, you know, quite, you know, uh, uh, I guess you'd say it. I think, I think he signed a contract with Fort Lauderdale and then he, and then uh, they let him go. But 
the point is, is we had quality players and um, we had a, a really good camaraderie, really good. And Jim brought all that together. And then he brought augmented it with players coming out of Miami, Randy DeShields out of Bermuda. I mean, there were some really good players that over the course of time that I was there that he brought on. And um, and then obviously, I mean, he had some, he brought in Michelle Akers for the women's team. Michelle's from Seattle. So that's a long reach, Seattle to Orlando. And you know what, you know, her story is one of the, the best woman soccer player ever in the United States. So, um yeah, I mean, I want you to kind of expa- expand that a little bit. I don't know if people in our audience may realize that, but Jim Rudy started the men's soccer program and the women's soccer program Correct. and coached both uh, at the same time even at that period and had success. Uh, he's still the winningest coach uh, in men's soccer uh, history, led them to the NCAA tournament for the first time in 82 and 83 uh, with another great goalkeeper in, in Rick Brexovic who joined yep. you as three-time All-Americans. And he's, yep. sec- and he's second behind you in a lot of those goalkeeping categories. But he also led the women's program to the national cha- the inaugural national championship game against North Carolina in 82. And then you mentioned he had Akers. They got to the final four uh, a couple during her time there. Just talk about Jim Rudy because, uh, you know, we're also doing a top 40 head coaches of all time. He's going to be very high up on the list. I'm not going to give it away because mm-hmm. we haven't released that yet. But the impact that he has made uh, for UCF soccer men's and women, and I know recently in a, in a few years ago when you donated – to the men's soccer locker rooms, you wanted it named after him. So he obviously had a big impact in your life. Uh, just talk the the impact of him and what made him such a great coach and really a significant person in the history of UCF athletics when he helping start the women's and the men's soccer programs and really setting the standard for the high standards that it is today. Well, Jim was kind of um, – Jim, like I said before, is very cerebral. He loved the game. He loved to play the game. And he was, um, he, he just was extremely passionate about it. So there's, you, if you look, reflect back, who in the world is going to be able to coach men and women soccer simultaneously in the same season? It's just, it's unheard of. It just isn't happening. And you're coaching it out of a small little building by this men, you know, by the swimming pool where the, where the swimmers would swim, by the egg glue where the wrestlers would wrestle. And in a couple of just a few, maybe two soccer fields that were made up of, of uh, Bahia grass, not Bermuda, not many, no, nothing like they have now. And, you know, and, and it was tough because UCF was just getting on, on, on board. Rollins College was a big power. University of South Florida every year was in the top 20. University of Miami, FIU, all of those guys had such a big jump on us. But I think it was because Jim had just a tremendous amount of energy. He loved it. And he, he got the players that he brought in all kind of bonded. So it says something for the coach, but the players that he brought in, they all loved to play. And, you know, and then Jim had us playing year-round in club soccer, too. So it wasn't just three months and see you later. It was a whole 12-month program with him. So that was a huge advantage for, you know, for us that he really, you know, commanded us to, you know, to do. And it was great. And we all got better and we could see we were getting better and getting further along. And that's, to me, that's massive. I just, I don't, I don't want to overstate or sound like overstating it, 
it's just you can't imagine FTU. Oh golly, twenty-seven to forty-seven years ago in nineteen seventy-three when you turn around and you had so little resources, so little money from the athletic department. Um, there was no football back then. There's just baseball, you know, the other sports. Women's rowing was big. Men's rowing, men's tennis was pretty big. It was a, it was a totally different landscape. And now, you know, as the university's grown and you've got football, and that it makes a big difference in monetarily to the university. You the, the the good thing about it, really, Eric, is that they've been able to pump money into the soccer program from a facilities point of view, and all the way up to date to what's going on now, which is state of the art facilities that. And now coach Scott Calabresi has been able to, you know, is hopefully continue to take advantage of and doing a wonderful job, by the way, with the men's program. So, you know, it's, um, you know, it was the players too. The, the players, I can't say enough. They all came, a lot of them from local high schools to start Trinity, Edgewater, Winter Park, Evans. I mean, all of them. And they all, we all got together and we all liked each other. And, um, it would it, it was a lot to do with the camaraderie and then how Jim fostered it. He, he was he was great like that. So he did a Herculean job to get this whole thing off the ground. Um, I think I think the hardest thing to do is to start a business. People, you know, you might be in business for fifteen or twenty years, but when you start a business, day one, it's not the same as at the end of year twenty. I can tell you, it's you know it's it's tougher the first four or five years you know, to do that, to start something, then, you know, to come in 20 years later into it. For sure. No, uh, for sure. Absolutely. And it really, I mean, you, you know, you mentioned obviously with Coach Galbraith and UCF men's soccer, they just got to the Sweet 16 for the first time program history. They beat Missouri State. Cal Jennings, who obviously had a tremendous career, the forward, became as a two-time All-American. He joined you. Uh, as as the multiple All Americans, as I mentioned, also as well as Co- uh, Brentsevic, the other goalkeeper, as the only multiple time All Americans in UCF soccer history. But they got to the Sweet 16 for the first time in program history. What was that like for you as an alum? I know we talked about it off the air uh, when you heard there when the news with the program reaching that height and being in the top 10 in the polls most of the year, uh, being a, a talked about as a national title contender. Uh, he's done wonders uh, at, at what he's in his short time that he's taken over here at UCF. When you summed it up, I mean, he's done it. He's done a. I mean, he's, he's, um, he's done a one. I mean, he's done a wonderful job. Obviously he's well-respected in the collegiate ranks. I think uh, Scott knows his limitations. He brought in some really strong coaches to, to help him. He manages that team very, very well. He has a, he's been in soccer for 25, 30 years. He started at that, you know, he just started as a, as, a, as, a, as a goalkeeper coach and then worked his way all the way through the ranks. It doesn't happen overnight. And he has a really good insight into what makes up a good collegiate soccer team. I mean, he's been with people like Clemson for crying out loud. I mean, he's, 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 he knows. And the landscape in collegiate soccer today is so much different than it was 20 years ago. Um, a lot of the players, uh, in the top 20, I would challenge you to say that there's probably four or five, six foreigners in each of those teams. And it wasn't that way maybe 20 years ago. 
Um, but there's a lot of people that want to come to the United States and get educated. And they want to go to top universities, which UCF is. And they want top athletic programs. And they want good coaching. And I think Scott's providing all of that. He's providing a really good platform. And I'm happy as an alumni. I don't know how everybody else feels about it, but I'm delighted because we're always overshadowed by University of South Florida. We're overshadowed by some of these others, University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, and all these other teams that are out there. And there are good teams, but, um, you know, he's, he's managed to, you know, the, 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 he's managed to, to overcome all of that. And in the top 10 most of the year, that's a great accomplishment. It, it really is with an exciting style of offense, top 10 in the country offensively. They still got good goalkeeping, so that I know you pay attention to that because you started that tradition yeah, of great goalkeeper. goalkeeper. Yeah, I mean. Very good goalkeeper. Uses his feet very well. Very, uh, he's, a good, he's, 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 he's a good worker, and, you know, he's very competent. I mean, you got to be strong up and down the middle of, you know, your center half, and he has some good players in the center midfield and center half. The two center halves, very good center midfielder um and i think he has a young man coming out of italy as a center forward so he's he's done to replace cal um so i mean that's not going to be easy but it, 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 it you know you got to start somewhere so scott knows what he's doing yeah what is it about and i don't you know ucf and i and i'm because i know you told me about this off there about jim rudy and, and goalkeeping because we have tremendous tradition in men's and women's soccer and goalkeeping history. I mean, you're, you started it on the men's side, but you're not the only goalkeeper. I mean, uh, we yeah. talked about Luis Gioffi. He's in the, in, yeah. He's in the Lots home. of goalkeepers. Right. Lots uh, of them. Lou Gioffi is, you know, Lou Gioffi, he went on to play professional. He was there. Um, you know, you had Bratisevic, and then you had, um, oh, goodness, Dan Cordia. Yep. You had a number of, I mean, a number of goalkeepers that, you know that came you know, that um, were the that, that were there. So and that you know did really really well for Jim. I just think that when that happened, for whatever reason, you don't think about it at the time, but I'm sure Jim, I'm sure people know about it. And Jim capitalized on it. Said, look, if you want to be a, you know, you want to play in a good team, and you know, you want to be a, a better goalkeeper, come here. Look what I've done with these guys. So I'm sure he capitalized on that, and and and, and rightfully so. Yeah, no, no doubt. And then on the women's side, he had Amy Allman, who's now ref- known as Amy Griffin, who's obviously played on the national scene. She's in the UCF Hall of Fame. And Kim Wyant, who is currently coaching uh, the men's D3 NYU up there, she was the goalkeeper when UCF got to the national championship. I mean, it's amazing what he the, the, the eye for the talent that Rudy had. And I think you could speak to it. You obviously bought in, but you were, you know, Roni Francois, part of that 82 83 yep. one. He's in the oh, Hall yeah. of Fame one. I mean, his way of evaluating talent and developing talent. Uh, for both men and women to be able to adapt to relate to both the men and the women, because they're even though it's soccer, there's still differences there uh, from both from from an athletic standpoint among others, and yet he he was able to adapt, and that's what probably made him one of the great coaches in in, the, in soccer in college soccer. Yeah, and also he was on the USSF, which is United States Soccer Federation, coaching um, you know on their on their coaching side of things. Um, which are really a number of elite, what that means are elite coaches that go and teach classes and courses uh, throughout the U.S. for badges that they give um, in an A being the highest badge uh, for the USSF. 
think it's now it's called Elite and Pro, but he was on that staff. So I think that so a lot of that um, that speaks to you know to to what you, to really Jim's passion. I mean, there's a lot of people could do it, they don't want to do it, but that's extra time. But he extra time out of your already busy schedule to do these coaches and do this coach in San Francisco and Denver and New York and Philadelphia and show up and do all that. But he, he did a, you know, he did a great job. And I think when players hear about that, they know when they're going to that school, they know that they'll be taught the latest techniques and tactics. And I mean, you, you're, you're not a dummy when you're at, at, at that level. So no, I mean, I just, you know, I can't speak enough about him and the players. You know, if it wasn't, you know, if it wasn't for people that, you know, that I played with and played around me, we, we wouldn't be talking, right? I mean, it would be, you know, a footnote. I would just be a footnote. So um, the coach and the players were awesome. They really were. As we, st- as we talk, you still hold the school record for career shutouts see, uh, with 25, season shutouts with eight, your career goal against average, .91, also the best. You also had the best single season average, .49. I mentioned you're a three-time All-American throughout your career. Describe for those that didn't get to see you play, describe the type of goalkeeper that you were. Colin, that's another good question because you're asking me to really go back a long way because we're talking 73 to 77, but – the goalkeeper I was at UCF um, was not the goalkeeper I was professionally. I think I, I think I think you know I just have to thank God He's given me a really hard work ethic, and I love you know I love to work, I love to practice. So Jim was great about that. I practiced longer and probably harder than anybody else. I think I had good technique at the time. I think fortunately I was exposed to a lot of other good goalkeepers and trainers. So I think I was fortunate enough to have some athletic ability. I loved, I loved coming for crosses because I love catching football. So I love coming for crosses. I didn't mind getting hit. I love going down at people's feet. I don't mind taking them out. You got to be brave to do that. Um, you know, you have to be instinctive and quick. So fortunately, I think I had some. You know, at one point I could walk on my hands and do some kip up. So. I think I had a little bit maybe of acrobatic ability, but that, all those things, I mean, it was all those things and, and how Jim pushed me, you know, he got me to a point where fortunately the Tampa Bay Rowdies drafted me and took me in the first round. And, and, um, you know, I played with one of the best teams in the United States with some of the best players and those players helped me and the coaches allowed me, to move forward light years when I went to England and I lived in England and trained and played in England. It was so, it was light years ahead. So and I did that for three straight years, you know, played in the U S for six months and went to England for six months. And that was, that catapulted me a long way. Cause you're playing with in that time, some of the best players in the world in the English first division and against them. You know, I, I, I didn't have a work permit at the time. I was playing reserves, but we always would train with the first team. And that was that was invaluable. And I was getting games, as you've stated, with Cambridge City, which is Southern League, which is like fifth division. And I was getting 15, 20 games a season with them, which I could, you know, could play, which is, you know, you can actually get a, you can actually play in that league. 
you couldn't, um, you didn't need a work permit. You needed a work permit to play in the first four divisions in England. And that never occurred until 1989, 88-89 with Oldham in the second division. But to, to tell you, I think maybe that for, for, for whatever, and, and for whatever reason, I, I just, you know, I just had a passion for it. I just loved it. I loved the work. I loved flying around. I loved stopping balls. I loved coming for crosses. I loved all that stuff. I loved diving at people's feet. And I think I just loved to test myself to see, can I play 90 minutes and, and incorporate what I've done in practice in the games? And if you practice hard enough, I think the games become easier. I think they, they're just, it's like milestones. Okay, fine. Boom, boom, boom. Oh, you got beat by that goal? You need to work on that in practice, not to have that happen again. So I tried, you know, I, I, I wrote down mistakes I made at UCF, tried to correct them. I kept that same thing going out through my professional career. When goals would go by, try to find out why that happened and try to eliminate that. So it was, that was a really big motivator for me. And I was playing against, you know, collegiately some really good goalkeepers who had all the reputations. So, you know, I really had to work harder than them. And then professionally, I mean, there were not a lot of American goalkeepers playing in the NASL. So, they, you know, that's a big deal. I'm playing against really good goalkeepers. They're all foreigners. So, of course, I want to do good. I want to, I want to be able to say I'm one of the best goalkeepers in that league, not one of the best Americans. So that was a big motivator, huge motivator for me. So I'm, I'm sure, you know, you know in athletics that that makes yeah. a, you know, big you know, that's a huge thing. We're speaking with Winston DeBose here and more with Winston DeBose here on the Black and Gold Banneret Podcast. As, of course, we're joined by Winston DeBose here, three-time All-American uh, UCF here, uh, UCF Athletic Hall of Famer, Florida Sports Hall of Famer. All right, so you talked about the NASL. I want to talk about that because you were you're arguably one of the most successful goalkeepers in the history of that league. For those that may not know, that was kind of what the MLS is now. I want to, I'm fascinated. Describe the NASL back then because I know you're still you watch the MLS now. And do you compare those two leagues as somebody as a fan watching the MLS and to being a part of the NASL, which had big names? Pelé played in the league with the Cosmos. You were obviously you were with the Tampa Bay Rowdies, our mutual friend. Trace Troco, who's a diehard soccer guy, covers the sport mm-hmm. uh, and, and, you know, grew up and followed you with the Rowdies and, and knows the yeah. Rowdy, that great tradition they had there. Just describe the NASL for those that didn't get to follow it and compare it to what we see now today with the MLS. That's a really, that's a, that's a, once again, that's a great question, but it's really, um, I, um, I feel it's a little bit unfair to compare. I won't compare the two. Because I think it's in two different eras, Eric, two different eras in, in American soccer. The NASL was from 1968 to 1984. Um, it was huge. Uh, it, it, was on, it came about on the shoulders of the German-American leagues and the American professional soccer leagues. It came on the shoulders of people playing soccer professionally in the ethnic leagues in this country 50 years previous. And in that league, it, 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 it was very average until New York Cosmos, who Warner Brothers owned New York Cosmos, brought Pele 
I believe they came in 1974 or 75, Pele did. That changed the total landscape. As soon as Pele came to America, European players and South American players would come and play here. So at that time, there was a big disparity in crowds. The New York Cosmos would get 70,000, 75,000. The Edmonton Drillers uh, might get, or Oilers uh, in Edmonton might get um, 5,000 people. But there are a whole bunch of other teams that were getting 20, 30, 40, 50,000. Chicago, Washington, Philadelphia, Tampa Bay, Fort Lauderdale, Portland, Seattle, Vancouver. All of those teams were really solid franchises, and you see those names in the MLS today. That's where those fan bases started. And um, the quality of players as the league came on from, say, 76, 77 to 84 was incredible. I mean, some of the best players in the world, George Best, Johan Cruyff, Johan Nishkins, Giorgio Canalia, Bogachevich, Reisbergen, Carlos Alberto, Romero, all those guys. And then here in Tampa, for crying out loud, geez, we had Rodney Marsh and Steve Wagerly and Wes McLeod played here and Oscar Fabiani and Rafik Kostic, Mike Connell, all these great players played here. John Gorman and Andrew Setsky, all of them. I'm leaving people out. I mean, the two best North Americans, Perry Vanderbeck and Wes McLeod, were the best North Americans. I mean, they're played in our team, so no wonder our team was good. So, you know, you you have that, and then, you know, and, and so you have all those great players coming, and the Dutch players, Wim Subier, Nashkins, Cruyff, Johnny Rep, Reisbergen, the Dutch just competed in the 78 World Cup. They were second. Those guys were playing here in this country. They weren't 50 years old. It was amazing. Yeah. So... I mean, and Beckenbauer, one of the premier players of the world at that time, he was playing here. Gerd Mueller, Ray Hudson, who plays, you know, who does broadcasts with Sirius now. He's there. I mean, like I say, Rodney Marsh was, you know, a big name. You had Peter Anderson. You had plenty of great players here in this, in this team and then other teams as well throughout the U.S. So the quality was a very good quality. It was a little bit more wide open in the beginning because of the 35-yard line. But we they reined it into the halfway line and I think, 1982. But the quality was, was very good. And unfortunately, it expanded too fast. And um, there were too many clubs that weren't pulling in the big numbers. And um, that kind of led to the demise, unfortunately, of the NASL, which was the precursor of the MLS. So... Um, you know, so I would say at that time, you, I mean, I, clearly some of the best, most of the best, a lot of the best players in the world came to the NASL and played at some point in their career in that period of time here in, in America. Now you got MLS, which is a different, I mean, it's a different animal altogether. They're really on much more solid financial grounds. They're all required to build soccer purpose-built stadiums where our stadiums were not, you know, we were playing in football stadiums. There's a lot of advantages to that. They're capitalizing off the people who now their children, they got married and now their children are eight, nine, and 10 coming up with the MLS, the TV, 
the everything, the social media, all of that. So the MLS has capitalized on that big time, like all sports have, but capitalized on that big time. And to compare the two quality-wise, I mean, I'm a little bit more biased towards towards the NASL and some of the teams they had. The quality was just amazing. However, like, for instance, the Cosmos, they would tour around the world, and they would regularly beat many of the teams from around the world, Germany, England, France, Spain. They'd go and play them and beat them in their country. So um, that's what I'm saying. They're really good teams. There's some really good teams in this country. It, the MLS is just built a little differently. They didn't go out and lavishly spend a lot of money. They are spending more money now. Um, there's no uh, there's no American rule like there was in the NASL, which I definitely agree there should be in the MLS. You have MLS developmental academies. You need to be playing American players. It doesn't have to be 10 American, but at least two, three, or four in a team to develop them. Why go to a developmental academy, Eric, and play and, right. and do that if you never play? But the same the same point can be made in your in England, where there's not a lot, with the exception of Chelsea, they had a band. There's not a lot of uh, English players playing in the top four, five, six teams in England. They mostly play on the in the in the lower part of the of the Premiership. A lot of English, a lot of English players, but I'm. I'm big on American players playing in America. I'm big on I'm big on that, and I'm hoping that you know we'll see more of them um, and more frequently because there's some good American players that are now having to go to Europe to get a chance, which to me is very ironic. You have um, McKenney who's playing for Schalke. You have and that's in Germany, and you have uh, Sargent who's playing for Werner Bremen. Pulisic was in Dortmund. You have a number of them all over, scattered all over Europe and in England, and that are playing. And you turn around and go, well, why shouldn't they? Why wouldn't they be playing in America? For some reason, you know, they thought they had a better chance in Europe, which to me is very ironic. But well, and I um, wonder, and I don't you think too that they felt maybe they felt they could get developed better playing over there because that's been under scrutiny since the U.S. Uh, missed the World Cup in this last uh, cycle. And that's been under a lot of scrutiny about how are they developing him correctly and things like that. I wonder if that's also part of it where some of these guys feel like I, I to be a better player, I got to leave the, the States and play in Europe and play in those leagues that are regarded as now, which is so interesting, you know, in talking to you because back then the best players came here. Uh, now they're all in the English Premier League and the Le- in the Liga and uh, you know and all these different yeah, leagues over the world. Bundesliga, right? Yeah. No, you're right. I mean, no, there are. It's, it's amazing. You must have. You must have literally. And in our day, there wouldn't be 20 or 30 Americans playing in Europe. The Europeans didn't respect Americans. They respect Americans a lot more. But it's taken a long time from the World Cup in '90 all the way through to today. So. You definitely have respect in Europe. And when they see people like Christian Pulisic playing, Weston McKinney, people like that, Sargent coming on and playing, um, and you, you have those players, you turn around and you go, wow, but it's taking time. I mean, the goalkeepers, you know, Friedel, Keller, Howard, people like that that are playing in Europe for long periods of time, they've got respect for sure. It's just, um, it's it's just interesting to me. That's all. It's interesting to me. I just feel that the MLS is 
flooding its market, not with the top Europeans, but with players that are second division players and from other countries that I think when you watch games, I think many Americans can probably do the same job, but that's in a matter of opinion. And, uh, you know, but I'm certainly, I'm big pro MLS guy. I think what they've done is amazing to have 26 teams, eventually have 30. I think it's an amazing situation and to have soccer purpose built stadiums fantastic you know fantastic and um the player development there was no player development when i was playing now they have player development academies they get great training all of that so it's really and the teams that are really good at that is philadelphia and they have some young americans playing uh for them in philly and in uh, new york red bulls the same type of thing and out in la they're bringing on some players dallas is huge like that so I mean, I, you see some light at the end of the tunnel. Those players coming through and, and playing, you know, being, you know, groomed professionally from the age of 13 and 14, which is what you got to do. And, you know, that, that's, um, that's wonderful. In order to compete in the world, I don't think it's United States Soccer Federation's job to develop players. I think their job is to get a really good coach, whether he's American or not, and that he has to get the talent that's available to him at the time and utilize it the best he possibly can. That's the thing. It's not for, you know, it's for the MLS to develop players and for the Americans going overseas to get developed over there. But, so I don't like to compare the two. Yeah. I, I praise, I, I love the time that the NESL was here. I think it's great quality. MLS is doing unbelievable. I never thought I'd ever see it in my lifetime doing what it's doing. Everybody soccer-wise, it's awesome. They're taking advantage of the social media, the TF television contracts, everything. I just hope that the standard goes up and doesn't get so diluted that, um, you know, people are, are, are get disappointed. So hopefully um, I would just say the big difference, though, is you'll see people like Carlos Vea at LAFC who's one of the best Mexican players. He's a fantastic forward for LAFC. Though Carlos Vea, um, Carlos Vea, you wouldn't have, he's just one player on that team. They have another player, Rossi, who's an excellent player too. But in the NASL days, you would have multiple of those guys on your team, multiple. So that's maybe a big difference from a, just a pure fundamental type of thing. You, they have a couple, maybe one or two Carlos Vea's in LAFC's team, but boy, um, you know, in the in in the in the NASL heydays, the top six, eight, ten teams had multiple of those guys. You know, three and four of that kind of quality. So that's all. Yeah. Uh, but I'm 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 pulling for the MLS. I'm pulling for the American player. I want Americans to play. So. And the UCF players. We got UCF guys in the league uh, right now. Currently, we have Warren Craval who we had on the yeah. show recently. He's with Philadelphia. And then Sean Johnson, yeah, yeah. goalkeeper for yeah. New York City FC. I don't know if you mm -hmm. follow them closely enough, especially oh, Johnson oh. being a goalkeeper. What's your thoughts on that when you see the UCF guys representing? Well, I think it's great. They don't talk about it too much on TV. They just, <laughs> you know, put, put the names in. They yeah. don't really talk about players' history. But, no, I, I, I certainly follow those guys. I'm a Philadelphia Union fan, an unabashed Union fan. So, I have I like – Sporting KC and I like LAFC in Seattle, but 
you know, I like the union. They train here in Clearwater. So, yeah, it's great. And, and I think Sean Johnson has carved a niche out in the MLS right now for himself at New York. Um, they're not having a great time up there right now in the tournament. So I don't, I don't know what's going to become of all that. But, yeah, he's, he's, um, he's, had made, he's had some staying power. He's been in the league now, I think, six, seven years. Yeah. Started in Chicago, and he's in New York City. So, no, definitely. Um, you know, definitely. It, it's, yeah, I definitely follow him, that's for sure. I watched him in this recent tournament. Yeah, and they've had success, and like I mentioned, I think they're two of the longest tenured UCF players in the MLS history to date, right now. Yeah, yeah. that's uh, awesome. That's uh, awesome. Now you, awesome. you can re- now. Sean has had time as the U.S. national. He's been up and down with all that. You were the U.S. national goalkeeper from '79 to '85. Describe that period of time. What was it like to be the goalkeeper in the U.S. national team back then? Because uh, the you know for people that don't know, they you know the U.S. had had a drought. As far as making the World Cup, they didn't make the qualify for the World Cup till 1990, and then made every World Cup until the last one. But what was it like when you were around, being the U.S. Go- goalkeeper? Well, there's another goalkeeper. who's a friend of mine, Arnie Mauser. He and I were the goalkeepers back then. Yeah. And um, Arnie was a little bit older than I was, not much, a couple of years. He had a little bit more experience playing in the ASL. So yeah, it was the two of us, and um, and it was definitely. It was definitely, it was, uh, it was, it was, uh, I don't know what to tell you. It was like, all I can say is <laughs> Mexico now gets a hundred thousand people. I would played in Azteca stadium in a world cup qualifier. I played in 1980. We lost five, one. There was a hundred thousand people there in Azteca stadium. We got hammered. Then we came back to the United States and we won two, one. Arnie was in goal. We won two, one again in Fort Lauderdale. We, that was the only game we won against Mexico. There was like 10,000 people there. Today, there would be eighty or 90,000 raving, screaming fans. We played games in the United States that, that, that if there was 5,000 people there, that would be a lot. I mean, we would, it was, it was, uh, I mean, I mean, I mean, it was, it was, uh, I mean, it was amazing. Uh, you know, that, that, that wouldn't, it wouldn't, um, it doesn't – back then, the United States national team was something on the back page. Right. Um, does not have, did not have the following it does now, which is even oh, – I mean, it speaks no to way. the growth of the sport, right? I mean, in the States, even in oh, the States. Totally. totally. I mean, they talk about the U.S. team all the time. They have – I mean, there's more uh, – I mean, good grief, there's more soccer magazines now. There's more talk shows. They got Tony Miola on Sirius and Ray Hudson on Sirius for – they're talking soccer for three hours at, at its clip. So, well, I mean, I and mean, you remember, I mean, stuff's right. On. I mean, remember when U.S. lost to Trinidad-Tobago in the World Cup qualifier at Tobago, people flipped out. Like, people flipped well, out. I mean, Taylor, yeah. the media trip flipped out where I'm guessing when you guys weren't able to make the World Cup in 86 in Mexico, uh, nobody even noticed, I'm guessing, is the difference. Well, it I mean, it was like, oh, okay, like it's back page news. Yeah. The only people who knew about it and cared about it was the – People in the United States Soccer Federation, some outliers, you know, some professionals and some outliers that just like soccer. It, it was, it's, uh, it's, it's so, so, it's so different now. Um, and it's awesome. I mean, uh, it's awesome to see all the American fans get behind, you know, American soccer, the, the men's team. 
I mean, they do the women's too, but obviously, I mean, I'm a, I'm a man, so I'm paying, I pay attention to the women's soccer, but, and they've done, you know, a tremendous job in their own right. But the men's soccer is, is just, it's changed so dramatically and you're in the top 10 and then you're in the top 20, 30, 40, 50, but you're in there, you're in the mix. You're being talked about on sports programs. It's, um, it's really great. And now this, qualification cycle coming up is a big deal it's a big deal for because advertisers want to advertise in the world cup it's a big deal that you know you want those players season going into 26 because we're hosting the world cup then along with canada and mexico so it's huge it's it's a big deal and and you're going to be getting a lot of um a lot of media and a lot of publicity and hype on it in the next next couple of years. And it's a big thing in American soccer because we're a very young team. It'll be interesting how Burkholder puts it together and uh, see if these players can play. It's just not right to have Christian Pulisic bear the brunt of everything. He's going to, He's a great little player. He's a big time. He's been incredible. He's been incredible with Chelsea here since they've resumed. Yeah. I've been watching him on NBC totally. Sports Network, which that's the other big difference. People here in the States are watching English Premier Soccer among you know big numbers, TV. I'm sure it was different back when you were playing in Europe. Uh, European soccer has grown and exploded yeah. in, 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 sure. during this time as well. Yeah, it's always big, big on TV in Europe, no doubt about it, but the explosion is here in America. I mean, there's, there's, there's no doubt. There's, there's, yeah. there's, uh, there's no doubt. Soccer in Europe is number one for the most part. But, um, you know, here it's, it's, you know, maybe number four in the sports behind football, baseball, basketball. Right. But um, then maybe it fights for number four between hockey and that. I don't know. But I would say, I would definitely say that it, it's, it's grown immensely. And like I say, social media television, sports programs, talk shows, they talk about it. But, yeah, the U.S. men now, it's a totally different deal. They'd call us up, Eric, and they'd, say, they'd, they'd fly us, they'd give us tickets and say, well, you're going to, you know, in the next two weeks, you got to be here, fly into there, no training, very little, little bit of preparation, not a ton. Then you're playing all these international games, and then you fly back. And, you know, you don't see anybody for six months. Yeah. Now they you know, have training camps in Carson and Bradenton and all this, and they bring players in and out, and you know they keep the coach keeps an eye on everything, what's going on, and before the before the qualifications, you got two or three, four weeks of preparation, and oh yeah, it's the whole yeah, it's it's a different it's a different ball game. They're all sequestered up and everything. I mean, it wasn't. No, no, it wasn't like that with us. It was a big honor playing for the U.S. It was a huge honor, and I reflect on it now, and I imagine most of the other guys that played with me, they probably appreciate it now more than they did then. It was just, wow, we're playing for the U.S. Let's get after it and play. It's a great honor, but when you really reflect on it, you know, it's very special. I mean, that's, to me, you can't get any more special than representing your country. Yeah, no I think when you're younger, you don't appreciate it as much as you do now. You're right. A uh, couple things before we let you go here in a few minutes we got left with you. I want to 
I, I would be remiss. A year ago, you got inducted into the Florida Sports Hall of Fame. It was an event held at the Amway Center in November. Uh, you became the third person from UCF to be inducted, joining Michelle Akers and the late, uh, the great Torchy Clark. Uh, what was that like for you when you found out you were getting into the Hall of Fame, the Florida Sports Hall of Fame, for not only what you did here at UCF, but what you did obviously with the Tampa Bay Rowdies uh, and among others? What was that like for you? Well, I mean, well, it's, it's I, I don't know. I, I mean, I don't, I don't, I don't necessarily always think in those terms, Eric, much. I, I just, when that, when they announced it, that surprised me because there's a lot of really, really good athletes in the state of Florida that aren't just soccer players. They're basketball, baseball, everything, right? So, you know, football, swimming, tennis, golf, everything. So, to be inducted with that class with Annika Sorenstam, world-class golfer. Um, oh my gosh, it was that. And then you had uh, Chris Winky was in there and Jason Veritek. Oh, you had a number, I mean, a number of people in there. You had, uh, oh my goodness, a really great basketball player for the, for the magic, Nick Anderson. That, I mean, you're, you're in there with those group of people. You kind of go, wow, how, how did that happen? So fortunately, you know, I was in it, thank God. I, and I just, you know, I don't, I don't know really, you know, I, I don't think, at, think of it was, yeah, I deserve to be in there. Yeah, that's me because I think there's a lot of people that deserve to be in it. I just, I guess I'm just one of the fortunate ones that were selected that year. An incredible class. Pete Dunn, the Setson baseball head coach, was part of that class uh, yeah. as well. I mean, well, well deserved honor there. Last thing before we let you go, I mentioned mm -hmm. it earlier. You've given back to UCF. You've given back to the soccer program. In 2015, you helped donate to help new lockers. Uh, describe what what describe that time there and donating back to the program and, and and you know being so still following the program still having the passion but also helping them out even today you know by your donations and helping with the lockers which players today and then the future nights get to use. Well, yeah, that's one thing with the lockers. That's one thing, Eric. But I think something a little bit more that that I was I'm more pleased with is that. That was a small portion of the money that was donated. Um, the majority of it went to an endowment, which is a scholarship endowment yep. for a soccer player, male soccer player with a business bent, because I graduated um, with a degree in finance. And I'm really proud of that because I went back, you know, back in 2006 and finally got that degree. I had to leave school early to go play professional soccer. So I finally got that degree in finance in 2006. So I was delighted. And I just have a real, I have a passion for business. I, 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 you know, I think everybody should own a small business, of which I did with two other gentlemen. We had 50 people, Bayshore Technologies. It was all technology, a technology company that supported HP and Microsoft, Citrix, companies like that. And we deployed uh, those products. But more importantly, that goes to, you know, that scholarship goes to help Scott Calabresi's team, you know, with players that are coming in early to school that either need books or need to take courses and credits and things like that. So that endowment will be in, per, in perpetuity. So I'm really pleased with that. I, I'm understanding that maybe the locker room, because that you guys are building all the time, you just <laughs> completed this massive athletic complex so 
the men's locker room is now one of the first people to go into that new building. So I don't know how that's going to play out as far as naming or anything like that. But um, I was only too happy to help. It was Brian Cuttingham at the time who was yeah. the coach. And they needed some help, you know, with the lockers to compete, bring kids in. So, yeah, part of that money went there. But probably 75% of that money is in endowment, though. And that's what I'm really pleased with. And I just, um, I just, uh, like I say, I feel really fortunate. And I thank God that I had the ability to be able to do that. I love what UCF's doing. I've always followed the men's program there. I have a special affinity for men's soccer. They, you know, they, that's where, our, you know, my friends even to this day are. And, you know, uh, an affinity for Jim Rudy, who I think the world of. So, um, you know, that's kind of the reason I did it. And fortunately, I had the wherewithal to be able to do that. So Well, and I think many of them, I'm sure the players and the everybody at UCF appreciates that, not only what you've helped there with your uh, donations, but obviously everything you've done. You helped uh, kind of start this program and the success. Uh, your name is all over the record books uh, and, and really have always going to have a big impact on UCF, not only in the soccer program, but even UCF athletics as a whole. Uh, Winston DuBose joining us here on the Black and Gold Banneret. Thank you so much for taking the time. Uh, always love talking soccer. And uh, congrats on the great career. Congrats on beating the Florida Sports Hall of Fame. Of course, UCF Athletics Hall of Fame, everything you've accomplished. It's been a an incredible journey you have lived there. And it's been an honor to get to know you and, and know your career real well and uh, as one of the greatest UCF athletes that uh, ever uh, stepped foot on campus. Sir. Uh, thank you so much. We'll definitely uh, have to do this again, maybe in person for a, a, for a, at a UCF men's soccer game down the road. Love it. I love it. Hopefully, hopefully you will have men's soccer this fall. So <laughs> we'll soon see. It's kind of on – everything's on the back burner right now. But absolutely, and I really appreciate your time. And, and, and uh, I don't get these opportunities very much to talk soccer, particularly at this length particularly under this forum and with someone who's so keen and interested in, in soccer in general. So I want to thank you very much for taking the time to, to, um, you know, to, to talk and to get some of my thoughts. So thank you very much. I appreciate it. And thanks again to uh, Winston DeBose for joining us and talk soccer. That was a lot of fun talking UCF soccer, talking about pro uh, professional soccer in the States, USA soccer, of course, and being a goalkeeper, the USA soccer, just, I mean, you talk, I mean, Jeff and Brian, I mean, think about him. And, and I ranked the number three, and some people might have been off guard by that. But think about what he's accomplished past UCF. He's one of the all-time greats. And you, I think I agree with you, Jeff. You mentioned at the beginning of this uh, the interview, I think it's probably maybe underappreciated considering what he's accomplished. Uh, you can make the argument he's the greatest non-football athlete UCF has ever produced with his success he's had in professionally and internationally. Uh, and he still, obviously, as he mentioned in the interview, follows the program, donates to the program with the, you know, the endowment and the fine, you know, and producing there with the, the uh, locker rooms. He obviously still, obviously, in touch with Coach Calabrese. Um, but it all started with him, and and really this tradition, him and Jim Rudy, who I was happy to hear him talk a lot about Jim Rudy. But what a what a passionate, uh, tremendous guy in soccer is a huge, significant part of UCF soccer history. And not just that, but the fact that, you know, he was good enough to play over in England at the time. And this is a time, I think, a, a different time when uh, there was – people forget this rather easily. But there, but soccer had a moment in the United States 
in the late 70s and early 80s. And and that was when Winston was playing professionally. You mentioned the NASL, you know, you know, the New York Cosmos at the time and and Pele and uh, and uh, uh, uh who was the guy? Oh, there was the great player from Germany who also played for them, and I forget. Yeah, I mean, he, he he talked about it throughout. I mean, it was the who's who of the world soccer at that time. Played. Franz Beckenbauer. Franz Beckenbauer. Beckenbauer. Yeah, yeah, they all played in the states. It's yeah. not like it is now, where and he yeah. talked about it, and you heard him. He was very outspoken about the fact that now some of the top Americans are playing over, you know, not in the states, and he hopes that they get back to developing them here in the states, do a better job of that. Where you see Christian Pulisic. Uh, who's probably the best U.S. player right now in the world and has a chance to be the best ever playing at Chelsea. Uh, and, and, and that you know, league, by the way, the, the NASL, sorry for interrupting, but I, the NASL lasted from 1968 until 1985. Yeah. That's that's a long time, especially, and, and I can remember, you know, well, I mean, I wasn't there at the time, but, you know, I wasn't alive yet, but, you know, my father, you know, used to go to New York Cosmos games in Giant Stadium when Pele was there and Beckenbauer, Carlos Alberto, you know, the, the Cosmos at one time average, I think, it, it, you know, 28,000, which, you know, Giant Stadium sat 76,000. But, like, when they played in the uh, – they called it's funny. They called it the Soccer Bowl. That yep. was the championship. They sold that place out. Yep. 76,000 people. That Like, I think that that would be – like, where else would you get 76,000 people for a soccer game for MLS right now? Maybe Atlanta. Atlanta maybe would Seattle, be the closest. Maybe. Uh, maybe Seattle. But I don't, I don't know of anywhere else. No, I mean you would have to go like World Cup style at that point. Yeah, and, uh, and, and it would and it would have to be for for the MLS Cup game, right? Probably, probably more than likely. I was fascinated to hear him break down the MLS and the differences with the MLS and the NASL. The NASL had great players like Pelé and all the players you've mentioned, whereas the MLS is more developmental. They're not spending as much money uh, like the NASL, which is really what cost them at the end. They spent so much money, but the demand for soccer wasn't there in the States because while, yes, they sold out New York, the Cosmos, there were other teams that didn't do well. And so uh, it was fascinating to hear him talk about that and playing back in Europe back in the day when it was this was way pre English Premier League. This was, you know, the Southern Leagues and things like that. Uh, what a journey. What a career. What a life he has lived. Think yeah. about it. I mean, it's been unbelievable. And as I mentioned, last year became the third person uh, from UCF to be inducted into the Florida Sports Hall of Fame because he's a legend with the Tampa Bay Rowdies. Uh, mm -hmm. and had a great career there and joining Michelle Akers and Torchy Clark uh, in the Florida Sports Hall of Fame. It was such a treat to talk to him. Uh, one of the greatest, and I hope, you know, as I did the top 100, and I know people kind of nitpick certain things with rankings, but as I talked with Murph about this last week, don't focus too much on the rankings because a lot of times rankings, there's a, there's a meaning behind the number beyond just, hey, I think he's the third best player ever. As I mentioned, he was the three-time All-American at UCF, which is still the best. Him and uh, Bricknovic, as we talked about in the interview, are the only three-time All-Americans in men's soccer history. He is the third guy to get inducted to the Florida Sports Hall of Fame uh, if, from UCF, the third person. So the three, that's why I put him at three, among the many reasons I put him at three, let alone his on-the-field credentials. And, the I mean, he's still a big part of UCF soccer. He still supports it. He supports it financially. Uh, there's UCF soccer players. They're using scholarships that Winston DeBose helped create. Yeah. Uh, that's what you would like. That's all you, what more could you want from a UCF alum and a, a great athlete like him? No doubt. No doubt. And by the way, I mentioned that, uh, that famous 1978 soccer bowl where the uh, New York Cosmos and uh, Pele and Carlos Alberto uh, and Franz Beckenbauer uh, won the uh, soccer bowl. 
who did they play in that game in front of 76,000 people? Winston DuBose and the Tampa Bay Rowdies. And uh, it was, I'm sure that, you know, it, it, for Winston, that was a heartbreaking time. But what a, what a moment it was for soccer back then. It's a shame that the game lost all that ground over that period of time. But the fact that Winston is still trying to keep that ground going here in Central Florida, which has such, still has uh, a, a passionate soccer community, is, is fun to watch. So thanks to Winston for spending time with us. What a great guy to talk to. Um, and, uh, and here's to his uh, continued success in supporting soccer in Central Florida. All right. We get back. A couple news and notes that we want to talk about. We're going to talk a little basketball. Uh, and we'll uh, talk a little bit more about these rankings as they enter a new phase here on Black and Gold Banneret. Stick around. We'll be right back. All right. Welcome back to the Black and Gold Banneret podcast. Jeff Sharon, Brian Murphy, Eric Lopez with you here. We'll wrap this thing up with a little. Well, we got some news. We got some basketball news we can talk about. First, uh, UCF scoring a home and home series in basketball. 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 I know. With the University of Michigan. 20, now, reportedly, they have not announced a exact date. All we know right now is that it'll be 2020 in Ann Arbor and 2021 in Orlando. Uh, now, obviously, COVID-19 notwithstanding. However, it's big news. Hey, and what do we know about Michigan, right? Aubrey Dawkins went there before he came to UCF. Obviously, I think Johnny Dawkins has some relationships with the staff over at Michigan. Brian Murphy, this is good for UCF, right? Well, just so we're clear, Johnny Dawkins probably had uh, a lot of connections to the staff previously because that staff really is no longer there because the Beeline staff is gone and Jawan Howard is now in his second year as the head coach. I'm not sure of how familiar uh, Johnny Dawkins is with Jawan Howard, but considering his his connections with Grant Hill, uh, again, I'm just I'm just trying to clean that up a little bit. However, yes, as I take my circuitous route to a point. They all uh, this, played in the NBA. It's fine. We all get it. Yeah. This is this is no. This is very significant because, as I wrote uh, for the site last week when this story came out, uh, this is probably the most prominent basketball program that UCF will have a chance to face since they played Villanova uh, as part of the Charleston Classic in November of 2016. That year, Villanova was number three in the nation uh, at the time of that tournament, and since then, certainly UCF has played a number of like. You know, like decently name brand teams like Alabama, Missouri, West Virginia, Miami. Uh, this sounds better if you're on a football field, really. Uh, Oklahoma, too. But those teams, in terms of basketball, both in, both in terms of history and importance to the sport, don't match up with Michigan. And, I mean, and this is more than just the, 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 the Fab Five era of the early 90s. Like, Michigan with Beeline just a few years ago – uh, we're making Elite Eights and championship games in the NCAA tournament. This is a top-notch program who is probably going to be ranked preseason top 20 this year uh, whenever the polls come out. If they come out, please come out so we can have a season. Uh, and so it is pretty cool that this is on the schedule and that it, it probably in November or December of 2021, Michigan will be coming to Edition Financial Arena. Well, here, well, this is the this is the big question. I think I like how good is Michigan supposed to be this year? They're supposed to be like top twenty now. As far as you know, like they 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 have I, their names escape me, but they had a couple guys who could have gone to the draft who are actually coming back. Their names escape me. I'm sorry. So if they had gone, they probably wouldn't be top twenty five. They're, they're looked upon. They're forecasted to be in that. Like 1825. Isaiah Livers uh, was, was the one guy who just announced that he's coming back. 
That is one of them. There was another guy too, and it, I, I'm sorry, I can't remember it. But the, but also, like, even if Michigan was so-so, and again, last year in the Big Ten, uh, you know, they weren't great in Juwan Howard's first year. They were 19 and 12, 10 and 10 in the Big Ten. But still, Michigan means something as a brand in the sport of college basketball. Still, uh, it's probably one of the you know top 25 most important programs in the history of college basketball. And that's something that Miami, Oklahoma, Missouri, Alabama, West Virginia can't say on the hardwood. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, I'm looking forward to it. I, I tell you, it will be, it's going to be really interesting. God willing, it happens seeing in 2021, the mighty Michigan Wolverines coming to Orlando. I, I think that's, that's such a great get for UCF and, uh, and Hey, here's a chance. Never know chance to beat him. Right. Any given well, night. Well, what about, I mean, what about the job though? I mean, Johnny Dawkins, what an off season getting CJ Walker mm-hmm. coming to transfer. Yeah, there's going to be a lot of talent on that floor when those games happen. Right, and we encourage uh, you to check out our previous episode uh, when we had Michael Donald a couple episodes ago. We broke down the basketball roster in depth. But look at the scheduling, because I remember there was always a criticism. Well, UCF's not going to be able to get marquee teams to come down here you know, because of the program status and whatever. When you look at what Johnny Dawkins do. He just got a home and home with Michigan. He's got a home and home with Oklahoma. I mean, Michigan is one of the marquee – it's probably up there – Brian mentioned Villanova. I mean, but Villanova didn't play at UCF. I got to go back to when UConn was really UConn uh, in the non-conference era. When they came here, would probably be the last marquee non-conference. I'm not talking about the Florida teams. That's a whole different uh, apples and oranges. But, I mean, Connecticut coming here is probably the only other marquee non-conference. I'm talking about the non-conference UConn, not the conference version. Uh, you know, UConn was UConn. <laughs> yeah, not what they've been the last few years. That's the only other brand names I can think of. They've had the shade, the shade. <laughs> to play here at UCF. You know, not you know, conf- you know, in a non-conference situation. So, um, and to see a Jawan Howard. I mean, Michigan. Everybody knows Michigan. The Fab Five. That thirty for thirty is one of the most watched thirty for thirties ever. People know that Michigan brand. It's one of the biggest brands in college athletics. And they, have a, they won a national title. They won it in 89 with Glenn Rice and Ramil Robinson. And they played for one recently. Uh, so that I don't is, like to talk about that because they beat my beloved Seton Hall Pirates. But anyway. I, I understand. B.J. Carlissimo is the head coach. So uh, I just think it's it's a, an amazing home run. And, and what an offseason for Johnny Dawkins, who has now proven he can recruit and he can schedule. Uh, that is impressive. Uh, to say the least. I, I've just been blown away by what Johnny has been able to do here with this basketball program that, quite frankly, you could argue nobody has done before at this level. As much as I'm the biggest Kirk Sparrow guy, I don't think Kirk could have pulled off a of Michigan coming here. Uh, like, you never know, but it would have been it would have been a tough ask. It would have been a very tough ask. Right, so that's going to be fun. Obviously, like we said, no dates have been set yet, but you know we're hoping that that it does happen. Well, that's Folks, wear a mask. All right. I would, um, I the name I the name I was forgetting was Franz Wagner, who oh was yeah, a really, really good freshman from the I last year. Right. Yeah, probably could have gone to the draft. Also, the the younger brother of Mo Wagner, who was like an NCAA tournament like cult hero a few years ago, uh, and also star on the Lakers bench. Uh, and so him coming back with livers gives them like a six seven six eight combination in the post. Which if you put you know C J Walker and Colin Smith out there, like yeah, I want to see it. Want to see it? Uh, we also have some more rankings coming out. We did okay. So this week we finally finished the in our UCF 250 series, the top 
uh, 80 female athletes in UCF history and the top 100 male athletes in UCF history. We got through the top tens. Um, I loved what you did with both of these, Eric. I thought I thought that they was fantastic. I mean, you did a lot of research on this, pulled it all together. Um, yeah, and we have some great representation across all the sports too. I really loved, especially the um, the women's top ten. We had Renata Menchikova from volleyball. Fiat Charles, who competed in the Olympics from track and field. Ariel Scott, also in track and field. Uh, Amy Allman Griffin. Uh, I know you, you, I love how you put Mackenzie Otis and, uh, and Shelby Turnier at, uh, at tied for fifth. I mean, I think you can't have one without the other there, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Ty- Tyra Harper, Stephanie Best. Stephanie gave us a shout out on Twitter, which was always fun to see. And Allie Kime. And of course, Alini Reyes, who we've had on the show before, and of course, number one, the great Michelle Akers. Um, that that was fantastic. Have you? Uh, so I'm not going to go over the whole thing and how you pulled the guy. Were there any? What was the toughest call for you? Oh, by far, it's I would say the back end of the male top ten, right? I mean, there. I mean, first of all, there's always, especially the, you know, there's going to be guys that were left off. That, that and also you make an argument to for. you for including Eric Amarola and Phil Dalhauser as as honorable mentions too. I wanted to appreciate. Yeah, that. I mean that was unique because they've had so much a great career pro wise, but they didn't you know they didn't play a sport at UCF. So, but they're you know they went to school here, so I think that was worthy of acknowledgement there. Uh, but yeah, I mean I would say that that you know there's guys that I left off that were snubbed uh, that certainly had a case to be on this list to begin with, but there was also guys. For example, in the top 10, I mean, Bo Clark, I put it as a tie for 11th. And I'll be honest, one of the reasons I did that was the Olympic factor uh, with our UCF golfer, Govia, has been to this, was in the Summer Olympics. Uh, he's playing in the European Tour, has been playing in the mm-hmm. European Tour. By the way, had a great career in his three years at UCF. So he kind of bumped out Eric Bo Cardo Clark. Gouveia. yep. Yeah, he's been tremendous. So I know some people might kind of question that. The other thing I wanted to do is I tied Bo Clark with Jerry Prather because Jeff, you interviewed Bo Clark on this show. And what did Bo Clark tell you about Jerry Prather? Well, absolutely love Jerry Prather and said he was, uh, he said he was the best uh, player, the best player 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 ever. Yeah. Yeah. Which is a bold statement. And I, you know, I've spoken to other people and they said, yeah, they're pretty neck and neck. So I feel like Jerry Prather who led UCF to the final four in division two basketball, hasn't gotten the recognition put him as the number 11, that was his jersey number, and tie him with Bo Clark because they were an incredible combo during that era of UCF basketball and the Torchy era. But that was tough to leave him out of the top 10. Who to you know? Because you could have made an argument for him in the top 10. You could have made an argument for Josh Sitton. You could have made a case for a bunch of other guys. So that was very difficult. And then obviously the football factor is such a deal there. At the end of the day, Dante Culpepper has the entire body of work. He should be number one. I don't know. I mean, what, what do you guys think? You've seen it. What where where do you differ? Because I, you know, Murph and I kind of went through it a little bit, but where do you differ uh in any of either male or female? What jumps out? I personally, I, I think there were some guys who I was surprised got left out. I would hope that they that they would be in. I think I think that Elton Patterson and Leger Ducible should have been in here at some point. I, I'm I'm I was really surprised by that. Um I you know. I don't have any issues with the with the women's top ten. I, I really don't. I, I think that the one call that you could make is I know you tied Allison Kime and Stephanie Bet. I think you could probably 
I feel like you could interchange Stephanie Best and Alini Reyes, but then again, maybe not. I because because well, Alini played Alini played in the in the Olympics. She played in the World Cup. Bingo, bingo. I mean, that's bingo. That's her, great. I mean, but I don't her, I don't think that I don't think that Stephanie Best place, you know, in in UCF history, um, you know, is anything to sneeze at just because of how amazing she was. I mean, her career was mind-blowing at UCF. And I think the funny part about that is, and, and I've told Steph this before, it's like we did, I didn't even realize it until long after she was gone. And it's like we were so used to how good she was because she started playing at UCF at the start of the program. We thought there would always be somebody like that. And, 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 it's, and looking back on it, it's like I'm thankful that I witnessed it. You know, and... Uh, um, so that would be the one for me. I, I probably would have put Steph, maybe I would have put Steph all alone at third, maybe Allison at fourth. Nothing against Allison. Well, I mean, that's a whole debate. That's been a big debate in saw who's the better of the two all time in softball. That's why I tied it. Cause I avoided that topic. Yeah. And I, and I also, yeah. and I also pointed out by the way, when the lights are on, you always avoid the the controversy. Lopez. What, by the way, what, what number did Steph wear? Three. Oh, okay. What ranking three? That's true. Uh, it's worth pointing out about Reyes, by the way. She still plays in the Spanish Professional League, women's soccer, is won a Copa America with Brazil, has been to a World Cup, has been to the Olympics, potentially, potentially could be at a second Olympics next year with Brazil, and could be at a second Olymp World Cup with Brazil a couple years after that. And it's only her and Michelle Akers are the only two UCF athletes that have ever participated in a World Cup and in the Olympics. So that's why she was number two. I mean, if you're in the same sentence with Michelle Akers, you're doing some good things there. Uh, but that's a female. Murph, what what qualms do you have? You got any qualms there? Well, I well, well certainly you got the number one right, which is ultimately for the men, you got Dante Culpepper number one, which I think ultimately is what is what matters. People get so caught up in this guy being over this guy. But what matters is if when you get to the, the cream of the crop, you get the right choices there and there. And you did that, I would say consistently, but especially in the top ten. I, my guess, my guess, my question is more of a uh, of a, a logistics question or, or sort of a, a, a thought process question. Like, so you have like, and this is only nitpicking between guys who are like one spot between a you know, one spot separated from each other. But a guy like Asante Samuel, who had not only a very very good UCF career, but also a very very good UC, uh, uh, NFL career. He is sixth uh, uh, behind Blake Bortles at five. Who yeah. had a very, very like a very good but short UCF career and a underachieving pro career. So when you weigh the factors of uh, how I guess I would say how much weight do you put into a player's college success, the pro success, and also I guess the overall impact on on, on you know or their like kind of like their legend status in UCF athletics. How do you weigh the three factors there? Well, I'm sure I'm sure the Bortles facts Twitter account alone probably accounted for Blake being up higher. <laughs> well, I, I mean, a few things. Yeah, partly, partly. Uh, no, it's a very fair question, and, and it's a tricky thing with these rankings. At the end of the day, these are somewhat subjective. Now, with yeah. Blake, while his career at UCF was short, it was very significant. You, I mean, winning the Fiesta, leading the team to the American Conference Championship, getting an automatic bid to the Fiesta Bowl. I mean, that, that's a significant job. It's why Mackenzie Milton is number four, because he led him to the Peach Bowl and won the Nash, you know, and, you know, national championship, right? That's, that's pretty significant for the university and for the program. 
And Blake was, by the way, Blake is the highest draft pick of any UCF athlete of all time. Number three pick uh, in that NFL draft. Now, unfortunately, his NFL career hasn't panned out to that ranking uh, to this point. But what he did at UCF leading that year, going to the Fiesta Bowl, winning the Fiesta Bowl, he's the MVP of the Fiesta Bowl, getting drafted third. And as I mentioned to you, Murph, last week, and I mentioned again, what number did Blake Bortles wear? Oh, that's right. It's very, this is all very, uh, there's a lot of numerology. No, and I said, I I like that. But I complimented Eric on that. I complimented on his foresight to sort of match up their ranking with something significant to their career. Uh, Very, like, it's very similar to what Joe Posnanski did with his top 100 MLB players of all time earlier this spring. The rankings were important, but he also tried to match up the player with something significant in their career. And Eric tried to do that too. And I think that was, that is that is an extra level of effort uh, there that I think should not go unnoticed. No, I appreciate that. And again, that number five jersey was popular. I mean, a lot of UCF fans have a number five jersey pro- prior to number 10. You know what I mean? So I do kind of count into that when it's close. Now, you know, if, I'm not saying, you know, if, if, you know, if the player was like the 35th best player, I'm not going to rank him fifth because of the jersey number. But because it was close, I decided to go there. And the other reason I did it the way I did is I had a hard time figuring out who had the overall body of work, Asante Samuel or Brandon Marshall? Two guys that are probably going to be in the mix for the Pro Football Hall of Fame. They both had incredible careers. You could argue the two best NFL careers by any UCF Knight ever to date. And you can make an argument for either guy who had the better pro career. I know Marshall gets more attention, but look at the career Samuel had in the NFL. Uh, you could make a case for him that he was a better pro career than Brandon Marshall. The thing that hurt Asante... He had a great career at UCF, and this is what kind of hurt some of these guys. They were during the independent era. So, unfortunately, they didn't get the you know the accolades that some of the guys that play in conferences do. But, yeah, certainly, yeah you know, you can make an argument that Asante should be three or four in the poll uh, rankings. I just decided to tie him with Brandon Marshall because I think those are the two greatest NFL pro careers uh, UCF athletes they've ever had. And, oh, by the way, they both were very good. In college, and I want to defend Brandon Marshall because I keep getting this. Well, he wasn't that great in college. <laughs> First of all, he dealt with a uh, a coaching change, a mess. I can't even imagine name the quarterbacks that Brandon Marshall played with. I mean, who? I mean, what well, was it? He, 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 Stephen it, it started. Well, it started with Ryan Schneider. That was good. And then, and then it was a rotating cast of John Rivera and Brandon Sumner. Oh. And God knows what God knows who else. No disrespect to those guys, but you know, uh, no, not, then, no disrespect. And then Stephen Moffat. And, 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 and by the way, you know, God bless Stephen Moffat, who you know, who came through in the end and 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 did a lot of good things for UCF. You know, but you know, was was Stephen Moffat? You know, Mackenzie Milton, no. 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 And yet, Brandon put up I, monster I, I numbers. Think, I, think even, you know, I think even Stephen would say that if he was honest, honest with us. Right sure. Now, you know? And by the way, let's not forget, Brandon Marshall was a defensive back. They moved him to defensive back because they were depleted. They played him at defensive back in 2004 and led the team in tackles. Hello. <laughs> and in 05, I would argue he was the best player on in the 04 team and on the 05 team. He was the best player on the field in Hawaii and that Hawaii Bowl. If you watch that Hawaii Bowl, other than you could argue other than Shaquem Griffin's performance 
in the Peach Bowl against Auburn, which Mert, you both were at in person. Yeah. Uh, oh, and then maybe maybe Blake in the Fiesta, you could argue, or Ken, or you know, is there a UCF player that's had a better bowl game performance than Brandon Marshall did in the Hawaii Bowl, where he was a man among boys and was the best player? He was the bowl MVP in a lot of ways, obviously really triggered his run to the NFL draft and then those, his NFL career. Those last two possessions for UCF in in regulation when UCF made that furious rally at the end of that game to tie the game, uh, Brandon Marshall made himself a lot of money on those two yeah. possessions. No doubt about it. And, and uh, by the way, I do have to reference Kyle Israel also also threw the ball to uh, to Brandon Marshall. Um, quite a, and it's, it's funny, you, you mentioned that, and Mike Sims-Walker too, Brandon Marshall that year, that 0-11 year, was the team's leading tackler, and Mike Walker led the team in interceptions. Yeah. <laughs> so. Yeah. Uh, and on top of the on top of the fact that they were both playing wide receivers, so um, yeah, <laughs> it was and by, pretty and remarkable way, when you think and, about it. And, and so then Marshall leaves, and they go four and eight, no six without him. Now there's other factors that played into that, but he was a big part of it. He was a phenomenal player. Imagine what he could have done if he was playing in today's game with a UCF offense today, for example. Can you imagine? Oh, imagine if you had him and Mike Walker in the same in, yeah. in the same because the following year they caught a combined 138 passes for over 2,000 yards. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, and 20 touchdowns combined. It's just it's mind blowing. Absolutely mind boggling. Yeah, so. he's amazing. So I, I want to give respect to his UC because a lot of people kind of, oh, he wasn't that great. He's really, you know, no, no, he was really good. Do not, it's not his fault that there were some circumstances there during his run at UCF that was really beyond his control, whether it be the quarterback situation or having to play a defensive back for a full year. I mean, there's a lot of, uh, and but he was unbelievable. I enjoyed watching him in person and it was great to see him in that. So that's why I want to defend him because some people wondered about that uh, aspect of it. So the last thing we got going, we're starting a, a new countdown. The top 40 UCF Knights head coaches of all time, number 40 through 31, is already up. Um, props are including uh, some old friends, Bobby Cashman, Courtney Trimble, uh, Patricia Allison in there. Um, I take a little issue with Mike Kruzek being number 36, and I'm not the only one who does. I think that's a little low. Um Although we are saving him for our later countdown, which you justify why. We'll not talk about that right now. Don't want to scoop our, scoop ourselves on the pod. But I thought Coach Cruz should have been a little higher. But, yeah, what are you going to do? Meg Colado's in there. Emily Klein's in there. Joe Sanchez. And it's worth checking out. But, oh, wait, okay, here's my last question before we go. You have Mackenzie Milton at four, right? Yep, yep. Let's say, hypothetical, he comes back and plays at any point this year. I don't care if it's in mop-up duty uh, in the, in the end of a, at the end of a game or whatever. Is there any chance Mackenzie Milton bumps up to number one? Well, first of all, that's the big question, right? Will Mackenzie Milton play quarterback for a fourth year, Murph? Number four. Get it, Murph? Four? <laughs> that's the big question around Milton, right? Does he get his fourth? Um, you know, it's a good question. Does he come back? I don't know. I think he has to do more. Murph, I want your opinion on that because that's a very good question. Because you have, you have Winston DeBose at three, you have yeah. Kevin Smith at two, and Dante at one, which is pretty hard to top. I mean, Kevin Smith, it is, it'd be that's gonna be a tough, but 
you could argue that Milton was on his way to being that way if he unfortunately if it wasn't for the unfortunate injury. So I, I don't know if he can move up. I think if he comes back, he may have to, you know, be more than just mop up duty. Put it to that way. I could be Murph. What's your thoughts on that? Well, I don't. It, it's hard to displace Dante, who is such again, like we said last week, he is the he is the the flagship of UCF athletics, especially football. Like he put the program. He put the most popular program at the university on the map. Without him, yeah, he's, he's the Neil Armstrong of UCF. Yeah, right. There, without him, there is nothing. There is none of none of else that we've really talked about uh, for UCF football. So it's really hard to skip over him. However, if if Mackenzie Milton again, even if he plays again, that should bump him up. <laughs> and if he plays again and starts again and plays well and leads this team to yet like another like successful season, and not saying they need to be undefeated or anything. But if like he plays enough to where like he's like still like starter worthy and playing quality football and this team goes like nine and three, which I know would piss a lot of people off because we have a lot of spoiled fans. <laughs> but like if that happens on the Kinsey Milton under center, like yeah, I think then he's number two. Because not only did he put in another like a third amazing year, but he did it after coming back from an injury in which there's so little precedent of players returning from the same injury. And so I think that's all baked in. And so, yeah, I can see him being number two. But but Dante is like this sort of immovable object. You just can't. Yeah, I, yeah let's discuss that more because there's a lot of people in our audience, right, that have seen Milton but probably didn't see Culpepper, especially at UCF. And I don't think understand the impact he's had on this program. Uh, I kind of compare it a little bit to the LeBron James, Michael Jordan, right? Like a lot of young people think, well, LeBron James is better than Michael Jordan. Well, if you saw Michael Jordan, you would probably say, no, that's not true. Uh, you know, I think Culpepper probably is to the point where maybe he's a little underrated now. I mean, what he did at UCF with, quite frankly, with all due respect to his teammates, not the greatest roster of all time. Like, I think we also, all would agree. Also a D1 independent right, with marginal facilities at best. Right. Trent coming over from one double A. Uh, and he led him to a nine and two year in his senior year. He finished, I believe, sixth in the Heisman race. I mean, I, I remember I was living in South Florida in Miami. I hadn't heard about UCF until I saw Dante Culpepper in, a, in an ABC Halftimes feature because yeah. they almost beat Nebraska in 1997. That's the first time I heard of UCF. And I went to see him play his senior year in 98 because my buddy went to UCF at the time on a Halloween weekend when they played a Jim Trestle-led Youngstown State team. I mean, he put UCF football on the map. There's no question about that. And I feel, I hope that I understand he hasn't been around the program and there was a lot of chatter about that because he wasn't at college game day and all that. And that doesn't matter. Uh, what he accomplished on the field was tremendous. And by the way, really had a really good, great NFL career going until he right. injured his knee. Like yeah. he was just honored uh, December 24th. And I included it in the article. He was honored as one of the 50 greatest Minnesota Vikings of all time. He was on, he was honored on the field and he was a three-time pro bowler was uh, in the offensive MVP. He was on track. He was on track to be in that conversation with Brady and Manning among the best quarterbacks in the league. He led them to the NFC title game when both your, your stupid giants ruined everything and beat the crap out of him. And I'm NFC so sorry, game. Dante. I really, I really am. But you know, but you uh, think about, imagine if he wins that game and he gets to the Super Bowl against Baltimore, does he beat Baltimore? I don't know, but he would have been a quarterback that led his team to the, to the, to the Super Bowl. And unfortunately his knee injury, 
he was never the same. Yeah. Uh, and, and I think people kind of forget that. But I think we need to, you know, and I'm a Milton guy. I like Milton. And I do agree with you, uh, Murph, about that. And that's the beauty of these rankings that is worth pointing out. Got, there are guys on this list that can move up still. And there's guys that will probably drop, you know, depending on what happens. Right. So yeah. I think, to so yes, Milton can move up. How high? It remains to be seen. Hopefully we get that conversation down the road. But let's acknowledge Dante for his incredible career. And I hope uh, that we see him at a UCF game down the road. I know he's living down in Miami, and uh, I think he's doing well. Uh, I don't, you know, but I hope we see him well. But I think we acknowledge what a what an incredible impact he had on the field and then people off the field, people like me that were influenced in a lot of ways going to UCF because they heard about this number eight. I still have his number eight jersey that I got at the bookstore the first time I ever came to UCF. I mean, that's the impact he had. Yeah. I, I you're so right about his his knee injury, which I think is still one of the one of the mo- biggest what ifs in football history, because he was also just coming off a spectacular season in 2004. By the way, even though the even though the Vikings finished at 500, it wasn't really his fault because he started the Pro Bowl that year. He threw for 4,700 yards, 39 touchdowns, 11 interceptions, and he made he made the leap that year. And then all of a sudden it all gets taken away from him is he tore three ligaments in his knee mm. and, and, and on one hit. And, and you're right. It was never the same. It, it took away his mobility, which was so key to his game and in, in buying time. And, and he was so good at throwing on the run and so incredibly accurate on the run too. I think that's the thing that people, people forget. Um, really, really ahead of his time. Obviously, yeah. Ahead of Way his time, ahead of his time. Clearly. Because at UCF, like, there's no way a, a player of that talent should be playing, you know, at a D two a D two school. Um, and but also in the NFL, back in the early 2000s, where it wasn't as it wasn't yet the, the pass happy league that that it was it was, it was sort of revolving into. Uh, remember the Rams' greatest show on turf in the early 2000s? Like mm-hmm. that was special. Now everyone does it, but back right. then, back then, uh, so he put a Bafo passes like passing stats had a gigantic arm. And with his size and mobility, he was kind of like Cam Newton ten years before Cam Newton was Cam yep. Newton. Could you imagine? So- could you imagine Dante Culpepper if he was playing now in an offense that runs like run pass options? Yeah, yeah. I, know. I mean, forget yeah. about it. Yeah, he'd be amazing. Unbelievable. By the I way, I don't know if Dante listens, but I, if he is, Dante, we would love to have you on, man. Just yes. Talk, yes. Yeah, open for however, back. however long or short you want to, the, the 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 invite is open. We would love to have you on the show, no doubt about it. So. By the way, Jeffrey Mike Kruzek's head coach uh, record at UCF as a head coach without Dante Culpepper, twenty seven and twenty eight. Okay. I, I mean, listen, will, you make you make I, you make the case. You make the case. I I, I don't know if I would have put him that low. Well, you don't know. We're going to find out who else is on the list. Yeah, yeah. You're going to have to find out who But he else. is going to get acknowledged. He is, does not mean, I mean, and, and we'll, we're not to give it away, he will be brought up again in a future ranking. Yep. So that'll be much more positive, higher ranked, which I think where his impact was uh, big time. But, uh, I mean, try, and by the way, being ranked in the top 40 ain't bad. I mean, it's not like there's, we've only had 40 coaches. We've had a lot of coaches, and as you will see, a lot of great coaches moving forward. So be on the lookout for that on blackandgobanneret.com. All right, so let's wrap it up here. Uh, we got a lot coming on. Baseball is going to be starting. That's right, Murph. All right, Murph, Murph. here we go. Murph, yeah, this is the moment of truth. Who you Your got? Holiday. This is a holiday for you, Murph, right? One of your favorite yeah. days. 
granted, this is probably the most bizarre one of, of your lifetime. Uh, <laughs> anyway, this is opening day. Yeah, right. But this is what this is it. Opening day, Major League Baseball. We don't even know if we'll get a full season in, but let's just uh, for for positivity and on a good note, let's say they play a full season. Who's playing in the World Series? Uh, I mean, I'm just gonna. I mean, okay. So yeah, it's a holiday, but it's like they celebrated Christmas in March. It's just weird. <laughs> it's just really weird. Um, uh, the World Series is gonna be. It should be Yankees Dodgers, which means that's absolutely not going to happen. Absolutely not going to happen because that's the thing that everybody thinks is going to happen. But you kind of be stupid to pick anything else. Unless you want to be sly. Uh, but no, it's like picking Mike Trout as the MVP in the American League. Like, yes, he should win it because he's the best player and he's still in his prime and he's one of the best 20 players of all time. But that's what everybody expects. So it's no fun to pick that. If you want like a dark horse, I mean, the Rays are a dark horse because they're so deep. They have tr- they have so many arms they can throw at you. Um, in the American League, I, I, I think the Rays, for, for the local fans, I think they're they're they could they could definitely be the third best the I would say the third best team in the American League behind the Astros and 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 Yankees and maybe the second best team if the Astros without Cole and aging Verlander um, just don't live up to to expectations. We need those Ooh. expanded playoffs, man. Well, we'll Jeff, as of this, as of this recording, <laughs> we have about uh, we have about 19 hours to get them done. I don't know why baseball. Is waiting to put, waiting to, to, or is negotiating a 16-team playoff the day before season, like a high school senior trying to write, trying to write a book report that he had assigned four months ago. But this is exactly what's happening in baseball. The Toronto Blue Jays don't have a home. We don't know how many playoff teams are going to be. The season starts tomorrow. Baseball is a mess. I, I love it. It's also very like, it's also weird. It's got this uncanny, like this uncanny valley vibe to it. Um, it's going to be madness. Will Base- there be baseball? Is that girlfriend that just can't get it together? <laughs> How about you that Bo- bonus baseball prediction, Murph? Will there be a UCF alum in the Major League Baseball playoffs? Uh, 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 as I go through the teams that UCF baseball play, uh, UCF baseball players are on, uh, Dan Winkler with the Cubs has a chance because I think Dan Winkler will break. By the way, for those uh, we talked a little bit about this last week. But I do actually believe, looking at all the projections, that of the four major of the four UCF alums who are on the sixty-man rosters across baseball, I do think three. It sounds like three of them are going to make the thirty-man cut, which will be announced uh, be announced on Thursday at noon. I think you'll see Drew Butera be the backup court, be the backup quarterback. Yeah, yeah. Right. in Colorado, uh, Dylan Moore as the utility player in in, in Seattle can play infield or outfield. Um, and Dan Winkler will be in the Cubs bullpen. I think the Cubs are probably the best team of the four. Butera's on the Rockies, uh, uh, Moore's on the Mariners. You have Bo Taylor, who probably won't make the 30. He's on the Indians. Of those four teams, the Cubs are the best. Will they make the playoffs? Uh, in the National League, that's really tough because the, the NL East is stacked with the Nationals and the Braves. You obviously have the Dodgers. Don't overlook the Diamondbacks. Uh, the Cardinals are always good. The Reds are coming up. So it's going to be tough for the, for the Cubs. Um, if anything, they get in as a wild card. But, you know, anytime there's a UCF player on TV, I will watch because I'm back to waking up at five in the morning to watch <laughs> Ben Lively. So why He's not? supposed to start, right? Like, you aren't you, isn't he starting like Friday morning right after this Major League Baseball opening night? Like, are you going to be just watching so, baseball day right, night? This is very like inside. No one cares about this other than me and Eric. KBO <laughs> insider but, Brian Murphy. Eric, today. 
Wednesday's Wednesday Samsung Lions game got canceled, I guess, due to rain or okay. what. So right. that pushes everybody back. And so Lively is starting on uh, probably, I would assume, starting now on Saturday, which. <laughs> oh, no. Is bad for me. Oh, uh, no. Only because I have, a, I have a tennis match I need to cover at 9 a.m. And Lively would pitch at like 530 in the morning. And Saturday is going to be long. Get the coffee out. Don't forget, and don't forget, Cubs Brewers on, at one o'clock first pitch with our good friend Adam Amin calling the game on Fox. Yeah. So you got a, 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 a full day of baseball in between tennis there. By the way, you forgot. I'm going to make up. You forgot one UCF alum. Not only do I think a UCF alum will be in the playoffs, I think he's going to win the World Series. Chad Matola will lead the Rays as his hitting coach to the World Series. Oh, There's, boy. Huh? I mean, huh? Hey, that would be a great story. That would be a great story. Especially well, if, if if the Rays hitting is what carries them to the to the pennant. Well, and the big advantage they have is they're used to playing in an empty st- uh, ballpark, so they will they should adjust quite nicely on their home are you, field. Are you projecting a Sunshine State World Series between the Marlins? No, and the- no, no, no. After Todd <laughs> Hollingsworth, as Murph brought up Todd Hollingsworth, <laughs> and watched the Mar, yeah, no, no, that's um, no, no. The fact as a Marlins fan, we're just excited that it's a sixty game schedule because it means the season will be end quicker. Uh, as, a, but, as, a, as, a Mar- as a Marlins fan, it's like the NBA. Like, Eric's just excited that they let them play. You know, yeah, it, was like, yeah. it was like they excluded them <laughs> from the season. That's correct. So, But I'm going Chad Matola, our boy, win the World Se- bring the World Series to UCF. That's what All I right. want. The World you heard Series. Here, Chad. Good luck. Good luck. And, then, and then Taco Fall, baby, in the bubble, NBA yes. Celtics. Let's go. Look, we, so there's a lot of there's a lot of UCF action getting ready to happen in the pros in the next uh, few weeks. So so yes, Taco fall up with the big club. We got three nights playing in major so baseball. We got we still got Warren Craval out there for in MLS. Like you know, yeah, we got some Cal, stuff going on here. Cal Jennings is still out there. Cal in, uh, Jennings, in- yeah. Jeffrey, Jeffrey, you would have been proud of Murph last week. He saw Jennings' debut with Memphis on the air, live on the air. And then the next game, Cal Jennings scored a tying goal, which was a beautiful goal. If you watch the highlight on YouTube or on the uh, Twitter, it was a tremendous goal for him in Memphis. So he's off to a good start uh, in Memphis there. By the way, I want to bring up the amazing amazing clip of Taco Fall. It looked like he was like – he's like now dribbling and driving now, which is just (laughs) – Oh, give me some of that, baby! I want, I want, dri- I want, I want dribble drive taco fall, and I want three point threat taco fall right He's now. Like taco fall slasher. What is this? <laughs> we might see that at the Celtics scrimmage. Weird, the NBA weird stuff is- happens in the bubble, man. The the Celtics, uh, you might see the Celtics in the scrimmage there doing, you know, you might see Taco doing some of that here with the scrimmage starting here uh, at the bubble here at Disney. Oh, I so, am so here for that. Oh <sighs> God! What a, what a time to be alive! I think you know it's been it's been rough, but you know, hey, we have this. This is good. It, you know, it, anything any good news we can latch onto, we'll take. All right, for all of us Friday. here, at Black. It's Friday. Thank thank you so much for listening. Remember, you can follow us at blackandgoldbanneret.com, UCF underscore banneret on Twitter, and of course, Facebook.com slash blackandgoldbanneret for all the latest. And oh, by the way, last little thing for you to note. Um, they updated our uh, SB Nation Reacts login. So uh, throughout the uh, th- for every week, SB Nation sends out uh, poll questions that you as a fan can answer. And these are some pretty actually pretty scientific way they're doing it. So 
if you've logged on to a preview, we used to be lumped in with the G5, right? So now we are part, UCF has its own, uh, it, 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 we can get UCF customized questions out there from SB Nation. So log on to SB Nation, look for SB Nation Reacts, sign up, you'll get poll questions every week sent to your email uh, and specifically tailored toward UCF. So please do take a look. And if you signed up previously for SB Nation React, which used to be called Fan Pulse, sign up again under the UCF name and we'll be there. Uh, and, and, and we'll get a much better view of some of the fans, of some of the views of the fans of UCF uh, going forward. So for Brian and Eric, I'm Jeff. Thank you so much for listening. This has been the Black and Gold Banneret Podcast. Stay safe, wear a mask, and we'll catch you next week.